0: historic weekend no matter what happens
1: training standards will will increase expectations will will increase I just, I I couldn't, I just can't go against Ballyhale The Club
2: Championship Show, subscribe to the GEA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now OTB
0: AM with Gillette, put your best face
3: forward with our new and improved Razors and you're very welcome along, it is Wednesday morning I think I've got that correct, it is Wednesday morning You're very welcome along to OTBAM It's Jaron with you all the way through until 10 This morning also with us is Nathan Murphy Nathan, good morning to you
2: Morning lads What's going on? Oh, just still thinking about Kylian Mbappe <laughs> Ooh, This boy is good, this boy is good Poor old Danny Carvajal Looked like he was at the Winter Olympics Ice skating, pirouettes and spinning Twisting on his arse for most of the match Trying to keep up with Kylian Mbappe, who just turned them inside out again and again and again. And we thought that uh, Real Madrid were going to somehow hang on, use all that experience, all that nous. But the genius of Mbappe was just too much. Last kick of the game. Doing that sort of messy thing where you know exactly what he's going to do every time he picks up the ball. Yet there's still no way of stopping him
4: and he kind of gets the ball past a couple of players and you don't quite know what he's done to get into that position or you don't quite know if he's actually done anything and the players against him just think that he's going to do something and therefore they kind of step out of his way
3: It was kind of weird wasn't it that that, that final that last non-tackle tackle from the two players who like was it because they'd already given away a penalty that that's why neither of them decided to clatter into him and think well I'm going to take the risk here Courtois playing the way Courtois playing
2: I think both of them probably thought the other one was going to do enough to stop him. Right. Because when you do watch it first, you think, that is shocking defending. How does he manage to squeeze away way through? But that is the genius of Mbappe. Everything is just so quick that there's the constant risk of the slightest clip. And with the speed he's going at, he's going to go down. It had already happened earlier in the night. So I think you could look and say, could Real Madrid have done a little bit more? Possibly. But I think you should just sit back. And enjoy what Mbappe could do to squeeze between the two of them. And yeah, there's a little deflection. There's a little deflection with the shot that puts it through Courtois' legs. But I think it was no more than Paris Saint Germain deserved. They absolutely battered Real Madrid, who, maybe because Karim Benzema is not at full fitness, maybe because there's no away goals anymore, thought, let's just get the hell out of here with a scoreless draw <laughs> and sit back. We've and been on this train. Tides.
3: We were on this train from the very start. And was like, oh, away goals makes no sense. This is stupid. It's like, no, away goals are really, really important. It's absolutely vital. And now, all oh, the world's best tactical brains have realised that an ill-draw <laughs> away from home is really great.
4: Like, is this more to do with the lack of away goals or is this to do with Carlo Ancelotti being the football manager of Real Madrid?
3: Is Carlo so Ancelotti there was a negativity there? big Sam with a couple of European, uh, European cups? <laughs> There's the if he, if That's a picture from the front of the Irish Times sports section. The ball is squirted out of the arse of Thibaut Courtois into the goals there, it looks like. And um, Mbappe, for once, Mbappe has, it seems, managed to make himself surprised at his own genius. He's like, ooh, let's go. Let's go. But um,
4: Mbappe versus Courtois uh, was pretty sensational. Yeah, the, the two best players in the pitch according to uh, Le Keep and their ratings you'd be uh, not surprised to see that Carvajal was uh, the, the lowest three. rated two oh. there was one player <laughs> sorry, two players on the pitch who got three one was uh, Marco Asensio can you guess the other player who got a three? Ooh, uh, You've heard of him delicious. not Messi Lionel Messi Lionel they get Pochettino an eight Ancelotti get four eight for Pochettino eight for Mbappe eight for Courtois Three for Lionel Messi. One of the scapegoats, I think. That is very
2: harsh. Like that is that not everything Keep is against, which is basically scoreboard journalism? Because he missed the penalty, he gets a three. Like yeah. Messi, Messi, it, it feels much like Ronaldo. We're never going to see the Lionel Messi of three, four years ago again. But the ball he played in the first half, where sort of a reverse pass, off balance, over the top, where it almost looks like he put backspin on it to get it holed up for Kylian Mbappe that's as good as a pass as he'll see all season tried a little bit hard after he missed the penalty he was sort of taking the ball off his teammates trying to do everything himself but every time he got on it like, he still looked like there was something
4: going to happen so I think a 3 out of 10 for Messi is way over the top uh, and if you're killing Mbappe are you looking around that setup at the moment and saying to yourself yeah I'm happy to ditch this to play under Carlo Ancelotti to play beside those attackers people are getting 4s and 3s out of 10s what in various Messi did as well Basically, who do you want to play for next season if you're Kylian Mbappe? And you I want don't to
3: know. I definitely would wonder, like, he'll be the king of France again. It's nice to
4: be the king of your own people, isn't it? Because it very rarely happens. Playing in a, in a relatively comparatively fun team, like I'm not sure what Kylian Mbappe does on the opposite side of things. Like, at the Bernabeu, we may have a completely different game and all of a sudden the Benzema, Sensio, Vinicius attack, maybe Bale starts or something. It becomes very exciting, but... I don't know. I think I think if you're an attacker who's who's here to to score goals and to to enjoy your football, I think there's one team last night that that looked the, the more attractive proposition. Can I also just ask a question about how it has become fairly common parlance
3: in England and the football journalism that Pochettino's failing in Paris. Pochettino's failing in Paris. <laughs> Manchester United. Ah, given Pochettino's uh, difficulties in Paris, Manchester United. It's like. <laughs> But
4: he's, uh, Like 13 not, points clear. That's <laughs> not
3: doing very well in the league at the moment. Pochettino's failing. So it's like, oh, jeez, they must be like, I haven't paid any attention. It must be point clear, two points clear. It's like table 59, 40. There's a couple of tables. A couple of teams missing here between Paris and Marseille because there's 13 points clear of Marseille. The team is playing sensational football. He's managed to get the form back from Mbappe that we weren't sure. It was like it's the post-World Cup hangover. No, Pochettino seems to be doing an okay job.
4: It seems. It's because they lost a game. In September, in October to Rennes, the 3rd of October. At the cup game? Uh, no, that was the league. Well, they lost had, one that, game That in the league. was
2: just after Messi had arrived as well. Uh, yeah. listen, they, they weren't particularly impressive during the group stage. They're getting, they were getting the job done. When you tune in on a Sunday evening and watch a bit of Ligue 1 and Paris Saint-Germain are playing, it, it doesn't feel like you're going back 10 years and watching that great Barcelona side, which I think that's where the expectation level is because they have Neymar, Messi, Mbappe. Neymar's also been injured for the last three months, so they haven't really had them. Like, the hope watching them was that sort of, Messi was walking through winter so he could run in spring and that suddenly there would be a uh, saving of energy yeah. and that we will see the absolute best of them. They're also not clearly they're not Barcelona of 10 years ago. Like, they're also depth and quality wise, really where Manchester City are. Like, that midfield is a is a sort of workman-like midfield. I still can't understand how Gini Vinaldo isn't getting a game at all
1: Verratti is under working Pochettino.
2: Like. Verratti's not workman-like, but <laughs>
4: <laughs> is, he at the, is he quite yeah. at the level yeah. Yeah. of well, did, Bernardo Silva? Did, did, you see, did you see Neymar's comments about Verratti this week? He says, I knew he was an excellent player, but I didn't realise he was so spectacular. A genius. He's one of the best midfielders I've played with, along with Xavi and Iniesta. Uh, he is. He, he is, obviously but, gives
2: him the ball. Yeah. <laughs>
3: you're you're in Kenny Cunningham's camp. Kenny Cunningham was like tut-tutting when I was talking about Verratti last season. No, no, not having it. But he is. He's like, every game he plays when he's fully fit, There's doing stuff. There was an amazing like um, bit on the highlights where Verratti gets the ball and actually gets swatted away by one of the centre-backs or one of the Real Madrid defenders who then pings this incredible 75-yard pass that just gets cut out by one of the Paris Saint-Germain centre-backs. And like I'd say, three seconds later, Messi through. Messi hits a three ball through to Mbappe, and it, uh, a brilliant save from Courtois. Like whatever about Real Madrid playing for a nil all draw and not being um, as good as other teams. This is the high water of football again. This is the whole point of all the money sloshing through football. Like this is as good as it gets. Yeah,
2: it is, and I, this ain't done. It is the other thing. So you know, Karen Benzema will have another couple of weeks to get that little bit fitter, to get a bit of sharpness back. like Vinicius last night didn't look quite ready to grab a game like that, but a scruff of the neck when he got on the ball in a couple of occasions he was free out on the left-hand side. You thought something's about to happen, but he just couldn't make it happen enough. Modric had a quiet enough game. You can't see Madrid at home being that poor again, that they're going to have something there to take. And then that's where the questions suddenly get asked. But this is, this is as generally, when you have two of the big guns, it's as good as it gets. Obviously when you have the mismatches such as a, a Manchester City and Sporting Lisbon, it's not quite that. But we will get the Manchester City against the big guns, which will be as good as it gets as well. So, yeah, I I think the second leg of this is could be one of the great games. But yeah, maybe you're right on Carlo Ancelotti. Like Ancelotti and Alardici, it's not that far away.
4: <laughs> I, <It was laughs> I, I I do think that, like, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Champions League is the high watermark and it is as good as it gets. But we've been so conditioned to how good the Champions League has been over the last couple of seasons that last night, I think, Crows plays a relatively straightforward pass along the grass, across the pitch to Asensio, I think it was. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, it's just like the best football I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. It's just like anything, anytime, any time anybody who you haven't watched play football in a while, which has been the case, I'll hold my hands up around Madrid. I haven't seen him since probably the last round of the Champions League. It's like, oh, God, this is such a good competition. And we're just kind of like gorging on everything more than we probably need to. But still, it is, it is factually excellent.
2: In terms of what happens next, though, with Mbappe, we just don't know the political situation around football and what is happening at both clubs during the summer. So Pochettino leaves, goes to Manchester United. Zidane comes in. Who does Zidane want to sign? How much money are Paris Saint-Germain willing to spend if they lose an Mbappe? Who's Mbappe's replacement? Is it Erling Haaland? Is that lined up? If Mbappe goes to Real Madrid, will Ancelotti still be there? Does Benzema end up leaving? Who else do Real Madrid bring in? Mbappe might know all the answers to all of these questions yeah. that have made his mind up. And also, maybe the easiest way to make money is and to move. To move,
3: yeah. Well, you get the the one-off cash payment of the 50 million or whatever it is, particularly this one time where uh,
4: he's free at the end of the season, isn't he? Mbappe, it, I'm not sure. Let me check here. Um, totally out of contract. He is, isn't he? Yeah.
3: So, like, in that instance, you're saying... Yeah as the as the agent the transfer fee is 100 million and you're going to pay that in cash in one go and then you're going to pay us the wages that you would have paid us anyway because we know as soon as we sign for you we're worth 100 million we have a, a no transfer uh, agreement you can only transfer us to the club of our choice and you can only transfer us in two and a half seasons time but, like that's the way
2: those deals should be done um, well that's how the deals will be done like Erling Haaland isn't out of contract but you know you can get him for 75 million quid He's worth £150 Where's that other £75 million goal? Straight into Erling and Alfie's back pocket.
3: Well, there's another. It's one of the super agents, isn't it? I, I, is it Mendes? Or... Mino.
2: Mino or George.
3: Yeah. Um, it's getting to that stage now where most of the bad teams are going out. We really hope that none of the good teams get caught over the two legs because you want to see... I want to see Paris Saint-Germain against both Man City and Liverpool over two legs. That's what I want to see.
2: Yeah, I think you want to. It does feel as though Manchester City and Liverpool are probably still ahead of
3: Paris Saint Germain. I'd like to know though. I, I, I think there's but enough doubt. It's a very City.
2: different type of test than Liverpool and Manchester City are facing in the Premier League. Uh, yeah, I think we'd all all love to see that. The chances of the shocks, I think, are vastly reduced with the away goals being gone because suddenly you can't get through with a couple of draws. If you're one of the underdogs, you're probably going to have to win one of these games.
4: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, we, it also feels that. I'm right saying this, we haven't really got a Liverpool PSG knockout game. Um, like we got them in the 2018 group stages, whereas like we that H was kind of scratched with Manchester City last season. I kind of felt where like Liverpool versus PSG will be a, a really interesting clash of styles. Messi at Anfield will be brilliant, but yeah, like I mean, you you don't. Like, on one hand, you don't want to see. uh sporting going down without a fight last night but at the same time you don't want to see Manchester City knocked out at this stage either you want everybody through to Oh the no, no it's
3: okay. absolutely not we, we need to see the big two-legged games Like that's why this draw has been uh, a great draw for Paris Saint-Germain Real Madrid for us not great for them because one of them's gone out and as you said I don't think it's guaranteed or nailed on just yet that it is going to be Real Madrid even though like that would be a big recovery from what happened last night. But stranger things have happened and Courtois is playing so well that uh, anything could happen in that second leg. Uh, should we move on and talk about Manchester United? The the um, headline is so good that the Mirror couldn't help themselves. They had to use it twice. Portuguese men of four and then Portuguese men of four. <laughs> That's, when it works. I've never seen it. When it works. <laughs> like, here, listen, stick that same headline. Oh, no, we'll, we'll use it for the other one. Oh, do you think they're waking up today, going, oh? <laughs> or are they like, oh, could we maybe like does this allow us to cut half the staff? Like same headline. Uh, it's obviously it's because um, Bruno and Ronaldo. Ronaldo broke his duck, his longest duck in a decade. Man United are back, Nathan. That's it. That's all they needed. Lewis don't get sent how, off.
2: It shows how poor Manchester United have been that they weren't on the telly anywhere last night and nobody cared. Uh, all the reports are that Brighton battered them in the first half, uh, that David De Gea again made a string of fine saves. They get the goal. As you say, Lewis, don't get sent off and get a late goal on the counter attack. Is it a sign of a, a turnaround? Is it a sign that they kick on from here? It feels as though they just need to get to the end of the season, grabbing enough three points to somehow stumble over the line in that slow bike race and finish fourth and try and regroup during the summer, be a Champions League team. Have Maurizio Pochettino in position and have players wanting to come to the club because if they're not in the Champions League, you're not really in the mix at all for any of those top group of players. But like, there's it feels like there's a massive rebuild needed again, particularly in those attacking positions when you see where they are right now. But it's not just like the attacking positions, so it's a, it's a good yeah. win.
4: I, I, like I. I know that you look at their team on paper and you can absolutely make a case that they're favourites to get that fourth spot. But definitely the headlines this morning are kind of like Manchester United back into the top four. I'm not saying that anybody's saying this, but it does feel as if there is this subconscious idea that Manchester United are, are in control. They're in the driver's seat now when it comes to this top four spot. And I'm just not, I'm not sure I buy that at all. Like there's every chance they finish there at the end of the season. But all recent evidence would suggest that when you look at, I know it's Arsenal and I know it's Tottenham, but the games that they have in hand and the, 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 the points that they could potentially make up. Like, are you backing Manchester United over the two of them? Maybe you are, given that Arsenal and Spurs are flaky as hell, but uh, at the same time, so are Manchester United. I, I just think that, you know, obviously you're being sarcastic when you say Manchester United are back after after last night, but this idea that they're back into the top four and, and all of a sudden that, that top four has, has found its form again. I'm not sure. I think there's going to be so many more twists and turns before the end of the season. Ronaldo was excellent last night, which is the only kind of not the only. It is one of the positives. The pressing game looked good. I mean, Elange turns the ball over in a dangerous position, and that gets Lewis Dunk sent off. That's what you want from your pressing game. And is that Ranick ball finally arriving? We I mean, we won't know for for another period of time. But the one thing we do know is that when Ronaldo's scoring goals, he's absolutely incredible. And no backlift whatsoever in his strike last night. It was it was a pretty stunning way to, to get back on form. So like, there there are encouraging signs. I just think it's just it's going to be such an exciting race for a top four because all those teams are flaky
3: I would make them favourites on the basis that uh, they've been through this as a as a group and they have managed to come through it now not in front of crowds in, in some cases but they've like how do you mean that they come through it as in like the, they've, the, they've been in the Champions League race before to finish fourth yeah. and they've managed to get in the top four Um, more recently than most of the West Ham team and the Arsenal team and anybody else who's kind of like some of those Spurs players made it a long time ago and they're a different team now I think Um,
2: yeah Lange is interesting because you know if as you're saying and and I didn't see the full 90 minutes I'm not sure if too many people did if he was responsible for a bit of a high press and fitting into exactly what Ralph Rangnick wants then he's a decision to make because Is Marcus Rashford doing that for him? Does he say, actually, this guy for me for the rest of the season does what I want? Screw everybody else. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to pick two or three guys who may not be the most glamorous, who may not be the most well known, who are young players who are going to do exactly what I tell them, and that will fit my game plan. And I'm going to make that decision.
3: Well, when you look at the team, does but when you look at the team named, it it seemed to make some sense. It was uh, Sancho, Bruno, and Alanga, and it's Fred and McTominay, and it's like. I'm not picking Pogba because I think he's going to get overrun and I'm not going to pick Rashford because I'm not sure what I'm going to get out of him. And everybody can do the running for Ronaldo and Ronaldo can, like it makes some sense, at least.
2: It does. The next month though is going to tell us everything we need to know about Manchester United. There is the possibility that Rangnick with the changes he's made, maybe it suits better against better teams and we will find out over the next month because Manchester United haven't played anybody. This is the remarkable thing since Ralf Rangnick has come in. They haven't played a decent team since he's arrived. So over the next month, they've got Leeds away. Elland Road, full house. First time in a league match in, what, 20 years? Like, Have Manchester United's players got the character for going to Elland Road? The intensity of a Marcelo Bielsa side? We'll find out on Sunday. Then they've got Atletico Madrid. Then they've got Manchester City. Then they've got Tottenham. Then they've got Atletico Madrid again. Then they've got Liverpool. Are you backing Manchester United to win any of those games right now? <laughs> I'm mean, not backing I, them to win any of those I games think, right
3: now. I think they're going to go through against Atletico Madrid. Uh, it just doesn't feel like Atletico are having one of those seasons.
2: Unless Luis Suarez somehow manage to do something bizarre. and uh, Possibly, possibly. And, and maybe they grind it out in those. But you can't sit here right now and say Manchester United are good enough to win any of those matches. Unless they are like, say, Liverpool were four or five years ago. were actually a counter-attacking game. They, it's suited playing the very best teams who come at them come at them and give them space on the counter-attack. But like, if Brighton were able to go, and again, Brighton are having a, such a strong season and a really good team to watch. If Brighton are able to go to Old Trafford and dominate for the first 45 minutes, that's a massive concern again for United going into the run that they're going into.
4: Yeah, it's they need to show a 90-minute performance before people start rushing to, to say that they've got this whole thing under control because in a month's time... I guess uh, the 20th of, of March, I think, is is that, uh, is that last game, that run of fixtures that you mentioned there, the Liverpool game. That that will be when we have a, a very good idea of Manchester United. But like I guess under Solskjaer, there was a, a big game mentality to, to Manchester United at times. It was the games against the likes of Brighton where they did tend to slip up. Um, granted, it's just a few famous um, examples. Obviously, they beat Manchester City last season but maybe they'll have that under Raniak as well where they, they do go into those big fixtures and do show up because I guess that was the, the one thing when Raniak came in it was like, well, he's got an easy run of fixtures to ease yeah. himself into it and it hasn't exactly materialised. No, did such a great job with
3: that. And uh, No, Kyle says, away goal should have only been taken away in extra time. I think that would have been fair enough. Like, you've got the benefit. It's been fair on both sides. Um, at the same time, in extra time to have the bottle to go on and score away from home, there was always an argument to be made for it. Uh, but I think that would have been a fair... Graduation of of this whole thing. Um, uh, Sashin Bangaru says Arsenal to the Champions League. I mean, you would certainly say they have the biggest and best opportunity. It's yeah. just that
4: the flakiness. It's just because they're Arsenal. I mean, that it is. Um, it's kind of like a self fulfilling prophecy that they will not get the nine points from their next three games, which are Brentford, Wolves, and and Watford. Although Wolves are going very well at the moment, obviously.
3: Uh, right, OTBAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette, put your best face forward with their new and improved Razors At 7.50 this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit about this. OTB reporter Ashley O'Reilly was at the launch of the 2022 League of Ireland season for us last week and caught up with a number of players and managers. Uh, here they are on the one thing that they would change about the League of Ireland.
5: Change
6: anything about the League of Ireland?
5: What would it be and why? Probably going to say the referees here. No, I can't say the referees. <laughs> Uh, one thing to change about the league, well, probably a couple of the grounds not up to standard, really. So, um, yeah, maybe to improve the infrastructure of the league would be a good starting point. Maybe a better play, better pay for the players.
4: Um, probably something that the PFI have looked at in the most previous years, and um, I know it is improving. But um, yeah, it'd be great to get it uh, more full time. From the away
0: dressing rooms, probably, including our own. In fairness, on so, and, and there is something being done about that, but that's probably it.
2: Yeah, I look. You'd, you'd always be looking for to improve on that. Probably the contracts of
7: a lot of teams, um, because you know to have a stable to have a stable um, team, you need kind of longer term contracts. You know, where a lot of clubs in the league of Ireland do year to year basis, where it doesn't have that stability. Where you see kind of the top, the likes of Shamrock Rovers, control out three, four year deal contracts where there's more stability and a core in that team and that's what it takes to, uh, to, have, to be successful as them. So, you, know, so uh, you want that in your team to have, you know, going in every year and having the same base of players there and just adding a couple to it rather than changing 10 and 11 players every season.
6: It'd be perception around our league, a perception around all that. We need to change that and make it more vibrant in that you only have to look now how many kids have gone to Britain over recent weeks we're getting more kids into the league. We want to get more kids into the league. We want to get more young players that they can, but we need to get the league uh, more professional and there's perception around all of that. Um, it is a good league. It's a tough league. Uh, it's well supported. We want it better supported. Well funded, we want it better funded. In sponsorship, we need all of that, but we just need to get that better. And I just like the perception around the league. I'd like more people to be involved.
1: Longer contracts, what? Well. Uh, no, I think just player stability, you know what I mean? Giving given lads more. It is changing to an extent, but I still thinking get better. a lot to choose from, but I would say probably stadiums. Uh,
4: a lot of the grounds need work if we're going to entice new fans and make it uh, a more appealing We're
3: going to have more from the League of Ireland launch coming your way uh, over the course of the week. Uh, Nathan, do you want to tell us about your new Friday night's LOI show on OTB?
2: Yeah, late night, League of Ireland. Oh. Get it, Jer. 10 o'clock. Is it, is it NSFW? Well, depends. I wouldn't have the kids tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, where's this broadcast? So, this is uh, live on Twitter Spaces. What's a so Twitter we're really, space? We're, we're down with the kids. It's a little button you click on Twitter, Jared, that uh, it'll appear. If you follow off the ball, you and will it see it appear on It teleports you top to space. Your, is that it? it? Exactly, exactly. So, if you're online at 10 o'clock, between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock on Friday night, and you go on to the Off The Ball Twitter account, you'll see up the top, Late Night League of Ireland. Click on that. You can listen in. It's sort of a traditional football phone-in, which has sort of been lost down through the years because of Twitter. So myself, Johnny Ward, and Shane Keegan will be on. But anybody can take part. So there's a button saying, I want to talk. Uh-oh. You click on that. We'll see, we'll see that uh, you, can, you want to have something to say for yourself, and we can decide whether or not to let you in. We're not letting anybody in who doesn't have their real name up on it, because we do want to uh, protect the integrity of the conversation that has had. But we trialed it last Friday night and we had a great response. Um, we had hundreds of people listening and it's sort of aimed at that crew who are heading home after the match are angry about the various things that we just heard there. And like, it's fascinating listening to what's the one thing you would change. And it just shows up the issues for the FAI that there's about 10 things that all feel like absolute necessities. If the league of Ireland is to kick on and get to where it wants to be from referees, from proper contracts for players it's all right saying you're full-time but you're playing players a livable wage if they're full-time professionals getting contracts so the players have the security but also the clubs have the security so that if a player leaves they get rightly uh the reward for that and that they're getting a proper fee from players Uh, facilities was touched on there it's clearly an issue still the length and breadth of the country i'd like to see more games on tv i think access to the league of ireland is a huge problem for a lot of people i know Grown up in Mayo as a massive football fan, like there was no League of Ireland. You know, we would go to Galway on an irregular basis, but you know, you never really, really felt a part of it. And for an awful lot of people, like look at the Premier Division this year. Like Talla is the most southerly stadium in the League of Ireland Premier Division this year. Like, there's huge chunks that aren't going to see Premier Division football that will see some League of uh, Division One football, but for an awful lot of people, you've got to travel a long, long way. And Maybe the third tier will address that. some of that. Like, um... Perhaps, perhaps. But again, you know, they can't fill a second tier at the moment. And now you're talking about filling a third tier. And is that third tier going to be part-time, amateur? Again, what, what is full-time? What is part-time? What is amateur? Because quite often they're almost the exact same. You're a part-time team, but you train in the morning. So players can't go and get a job. Or you train at different times of the week. So like, it's a very difficult situation. 18, 19, 20-year-olds find themselves in. Yeah. If you're in college, I have the links there with the colleges. So there's a lot to go. But I do think think one of the issues is that there's just not enough games on the TV. 15 games. Obviously, air sport not being around anymore is is a big blow. But still, air sport was somewhat niche. But for the national broadcaster to only have 15 matches on, sort of split up across the season. So you can't get into a rhythm of what's a title race? Who are the personalities? How's Jack Byrne playing? I have no idea. I, and, and it's not not necessarily an RTE thing. It's that the FAI just don't have any bargaining chip to say you got to show these games. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, it
3: is an RTE thing. Let's not sorry. It is an RTE thing. They've decided to prioritise that they're going to play put money behind other sports as opposed to putting money behind domestic football.
2: Well, they have. But I would assume that, and the obvious example would be that the amount of club football or club club GA games that are being shown. But the GEA I assume there have had a very strong hand to say, well, if you're going to show the absolute peak, the intercounty game, you're also going to show this amount of games.
3: Well they picked up uh, they I mean, picked up the, the existing deals they, they picked up just for, for clarification here. They picked up the old air sports deals um that air Sport would have had when um air Sport decided they were getting out of sports, RTE did a deal to take those in that current rights package, which was due to end this year but which may end up um Rolling over to next year, so they will say that they they got the league games on Saturday night, and part of that package is also getting those club games, and so um, you know to get the league games they had to show the club games,
2: which I suppose it's is what you're making. That some of those games. Well, I I just think there's a bigger debate, but I think it's insanity the amount of club games that were shown in the GEA this year in comparison to a professional league that there is, you know, some of these players are going to be in and around the Ireland squad this year. Like The standard is good. It's incredibly insulting. I don't think you can put club GEA players on the same level as League of Ireland Premier Division players in terms of the level they are at. Like this is not that far off several of these players being around the Ireland international squad. They deserve to be shown on TV. But there's obviously legacy issues there. I know Declan McBennett was talking last year about viewing figures but again, one leads to the other. It's very hard to get viewing figures when... the. Do you know if there's a game on at 7 o'clock on a Friday night? Yeah, there's one this week. There might be one the week after. You mightn't see another one then for a month. Then you might get a couple of games. Are you watching Rovers? Are you watching Shells? There's League of Ireland TV there if you want to follow your own team. But like, like maybe the Friday nights don't work. I know this will be very divisive in League of Ireland circles. Like if there's still a TV ban in England, maybe 3 o'clock on a Saturday. Could you have that every single Saturday? You'd take away something of the Friday night feeling, but... Yeah, I I think they need to find a way. They need to find another broadcaster. I'm surprised maybe TG Cahar haven't come in, considering you know the brilliant coverage they give of so many sports, to add another 15 on top of that. And suddenly you've got a game a week. And even a game a week, transform it. A proper highlight show at a reasonable time. But um, the numbers have never stacked up.
4: Yeah, like on, on those numbers. So what were we saying that the, the club GA were getting on RTE recently? It was About, about 200,000 was was a peak, maybe, I want to say. So just like this is just literally just a quick Google. And obviously the the night of the, the Jordan Flowers goal um, against Dundalk. So that was, I guess, probably it's actually probably a good comparison. It was the last time things were, were normal. Um, and with, with full stadiums at near the start of a season, that... Game peaked at ninety thousand, uh, just after the goal. Averaged out of fifty nine thousand six hundred uh, on on RT because that game was was obviously on TV that night. So, so that that's what the League of Ireland is getting, and I, w- I would suggest that the, the club GA is is getting in and around double that. Um, it's it, hard it, to know. It's hard to to like. There are different figures. Um, everything
3: that the uh, the audience figures for TV can be. Um, you know oh uh, this amount of people tuned into this broadcast at some point and it's like for you know for five minutes ten minutes like what was that so um, Dunica Boyle's reporting back in 2020 figures were 61,000 right uh, but that's actually that was being we were told that was good because that was like 8% or 10% of the available audience
4: so I don't know like i mean like you would have thought that if a game is peaking at 90,000 people that should be enough to wash its face and like i mean it, 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 it doesn't need that like it also I mean, depends on so the taxpayer funds this organization is it
3: then is it then an organization that is is supposed to help grow the sports or or not like do, do we believe in... is it public service hmm. to uh, to show that or is public service actually then that means you have to show the, the basketball and you've got to show the athletics and you've got to have reporters at every single bun fight I, like I think we we have straight off into a, what is the, the whole point of public service broadcasting here while they're also taking ads and sponsorship like you know it's, uh, it's it's certainly an interesting debate and I'd be interested to hear from the League of Ireland community what they think of how well or otherwise their sport is covered
4: mm. Um. Like it, it does seem, and I'm reading just from a Gavin Cooney piece here that that uh, McBennett sees an audience of at least 100,000 people as uh, a success. So that's that's the threshold that that he's looking to hit at the moment. But as you say, like it shouldn't come back to that, and or it shouldn't be solely dependent on that. And also, uh, as I think you made that point just there, Nathan, is that like you've got to start somewhere. And it does feel that we're constantly talking about where does it start, even though this league is generations old. It's it's still talk we're still talking around it as if like television has just been invented as (laughs) as if like we're just trying to find a a new first step into the new generation.
2: Well, we are. Look at the way the Premier League is covered. So we'll probably watch anything as was proven over the last couple of years when every game was on TV. But Sky Pick, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United every week. So you can see them, you can talk about them, you've got a good knowledge of them. If you had... Rovers, Shells, Pats, Dundalk on almost a rotation that you're seeing them every second, third week. Suddenly you know the players. Suddenly you understand and have expectations around form, around tactics, around how teams play. You can have a debate about it. It brings you back. There's a little bit of interest. But that's that's just not there. As I say, it's Pats against Shells on TV on Friday night. There's obviously going to be a huge interest because of Damien Duff being there. But when are we going to see Pats and Shells again? You see a young guy, you see a Wanku playing at the back and you're excited. He's going to Udinese you going to see him on TV again before he goes to Udinese? We just don't know because what way will they pick the fixtures? How many games are going to be on before July? So I, 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 I'm surprised nobody else has picked up more matches, more of that air deal, uh, which again maybe says a lot that uh, commercially maybe it's, it's not seen as being viable. But it does feel that the, there's a greater connection with the League of Ireland for people around the country than there's ever been. Like you mentioned that Jordan Flowers goal, like COVID couldn't have come at a worse time. Like that night in Tally, you've got six, 7,000 people. You've got one of the greatest League of Ireland goals of all time. You've got Jack Byrne scoring the winner. You've got a proper rivalry, it felt, between Dundalk and Shamrock Rovers. And I think that was Rovers' last home game before COVID kicked in. Now, they've sold over 3,000 season tickets. Shells have sold a huge amount of season tickets. Uh, Pats, bows they're all selling massive amounts of tickets. So there's a there is a momentum there behind it at the moment.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: and, okay. and there's things that outsiders need to do. There's things the clubs need to do themselves as well. Like, you yeah. know, Daily Mount, the redevelopment still hasn't happened. Do Shells really want to leave Talca Park? Like, Are they fully positioned to capitalise on the interest that Damien Duff will bring? It's hard to know. Like, I think they've made massive improvements. All of these clubs are, but like, they need investment and maybe this League of Ireland strategy where they're doing the audit of the grounds will see investment come so that Talke is redeveloped fully if Shell stay Daily Mount's redeveloped That you know families are happy to go to these grounds and know it'll be an enjoyable experience like you would get at a good quality GA or rugby ground
3: yeah alright look we're going to leave the League of Ireland chat there Twitter spaces from 10 o'clock just click the button on the top make sure you're following at Off The Ball and then as we go live um, you'll automatically be aware of it once you in the app it pops up at the top you can't miss it you just click that button with all the people whose faces you know make sure you're signed in with a name as opposed to JSW827469 and uh, you know. oh, I'll tell you about Stephen Bradley don't you're not getting on yeah I would listen to that <laughs> 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 and, and yeah, okay. right. uh, here's a quick one right James O'Donoghue on his favourite Kerry teammate and the one player from another county that he wished he'd play with on
1: episode 4 of the football pod available on podcast right now The fellow that I'm going to say that I would like to play with is Kieran Kilkenny. Because I think that he he has a bit of everything. And he, he seems to be a savage team player. Yeah. He never makes silly decisions or decisions for himself. He's always doing the right thing. And he keeps hammering the hammer. like He keeps doing the right thing over and over and over again. Even if if it's the boring thing. If it's the thing in that game that needs to be done, he's the one that just keeps doing it. And he, like, he's actually—it's hard to say—he's underrated. But like, he is—he's the thing that keeps taking over the dubs when they're not going well. He'll come up with, with some move or some pattern of play to get a score and restart the whole thing. So, I definitely like to play with him. I think that he's—he's um, he's a savage operator, and. <sighs> the best I play with again is a, is a cheek question because, it's like, mm. obviously, you're going to say Cullum. But if I was to go outside the box on it and not mm. pick your obvious couple, don't pick Cullum or here or Galvin, say, or Declan, then I would say the fellas I liked playing the most with were, were Maher and Dunnick Walsh.
4: Right, pretty interesting. Yeah, clearly a fan of uh, the workhorse, the person who does the essential thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. all we all love those as much as uh, as much as the genius. Yeah,
3: um, some really good stuff in that. Ask me anything with uh, with James and who They picked their uh, seven aside. Paddy made it up on the spot, but picked a lot of dubs. James very very, you know, generously decided I'm not going to pick any Kerry lads because it would just be all Kerry. And then um, you get to find out who his favorite players are. So it's a good it's a good mechanic. He was like. Um, Pick Mugsy in his team. Right. I was very surprised. And then and then it re, Paddy Andrews revealed that he has Muggsy's jersey from the goal. No way. Dublin because his brother got it. Oh, ah, yeah. And then he was like, I must I must uh, get it back to him. I'm like, what? No way. That's the type of thing you get. I'd say Muggsy has auctioned that jersey many times. <laughs> the the, the Derry lads went on a tour of um, the States where they got the point that kicked the winner in the semifinal and final. They got those boots and they auctioned them a lot. <laughs> they would scuff them up wherever it was. Nathan seems to be gone there, I think. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, that was, he, he, he came, he said it all, he disappeared. Um, you can catch him on Friday night. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't get into uh, Mayo Dublin in Croker on yeah. Saturday evening. So here's what's coming up. Between now and 10 o'clock, Phil Thompson is going to talk to us about a legendary encounter in the San Siro in the past from uh, one of the seminal moments of his youth. Uh, We've got the sports page coming your way at 8.30. A lap of honour from John Duggan, who is on the hottest of hot streaks at 8.40, when he talks to us about this week's virtual insanity and a quick look back at last week's sensation. I presume you talked about this yesterday. Uh, Kerry charts with uh, Daryl Canage at 8.45. Joey Carberry live at 9.15 this morning and Matt Lawton. At half past nine. At eight minutes past eight though we're going to take a quick break and we're back talking uh, Liverpool Inter with Phil Thompson. OTB
4: A.M. It's 11 minutes past eight. You're very welcome back. You'll have heard in the ad break there a true hero of the Women's National League, Kylie Murphy of uh, Wexford Youths, catching up with Karen and Kathleen on this week's episode of the Koi pod on OTB Sports in association with Cabri FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland's Women's National Team. You can get the full episode right now in all your usual podcast spots or you can watch it back on the Off The Ball YouTube channel as well. Uh, Right, we are turning our attention back to the Champions League. couple of games tonight, you've got RB Salzburg, against Bayern Munich at 8 o'clock but at the same time you've got Inter Milan at home to Liverpool at the San Siro and this is what we are focusing on for the next little while delighted to welcome Phil Thompson back to the show Phil, how are you getting on?
6: Good morning guys very good, thank you very good enjoyed the football last night wow, Man City were wow, blew them away absolutely blew them away yeah. I thought there'd be more goals in the other one but just one
4: yeah, Thibaut Courtois, pretty good at football, it turns out, uh, to, to limit uh, the amount of goal scoring there. We, we wanted to get you on, Phil, because obviously we'll preview the match in just a second, but. Liverpool at the San Siro is a fairly interesting story. And if we go back to uh, 1965, this is the, the season we <laughs> want to focus on. Uh, I'm sure you were you were only a young fella at this point, Phil. So uh, I'm wondering how much you actually recall about this season, because this was a European <laughs> Cup semi-final. Uh, the, the first leg at Anfield, the second leg in San Siro. A great home first leg, which you were at, I understand. But uh, a bit of a disaster in the second leg and a, and a very controversial tie, all told.
6: Yeah, it was. It was we didn't have as much T V coverage. Uh, but obviously watching that game back was was so disappointing. That, yes, I was at that first game, um, at Fanfield. Um my mum got got us tickets right in the front row of the Kemlin Road as it was then, now it's the Sir Kenny Stand and uh, Jerry Byrne, Gordon Milne brought the cup round within touching distance of us. So it's a massive occasion into Milano with the, one of the great signs in Europe. And of course, we blew them away 3-1, which was absolutely terrific. So going over there full of hope, knowing it was going to be difficult. And what was to unfold was extremely disappointing. Even now, when I think back about it, seeing what happened, uh, St. John's disallowed goal and, and the ball getting kicked out of um, Tommy Lawrence's hand and there was straight away everybody was, was looking and talking about it. and I think there was big inquest into it many years later which was quite proven about the officials in the game.
4: Yeah, I think we have video of uh, the ball getting kicked out of Lawrence's hand uh, which we'll put on screen here now so... Um Goalkeeper picks up the ball, uh, brings it back into the box, the Inter Milan player sneaking behind him and uh, (laughs) takes the ball off him into the back of the net. And you can see the Liverpool players following the referee here at this point in uh, something we may not see, I like mean, it's, it's, it's 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 like Chelsea that time uh, with Michael Balak and Jogba chasing the referee. To be quite honest with you, but in 1965 maybe a little bit more aggressive. It, it was it was one of a, a a number of different moments in this match. There was obviously the a, a free kick that was given as an indirect free kick, but Inter Milan take it directly goes into the back of the net, which Liverpool weren't happy about at that point. Like what what's what's interesting for me, Phil, is that you're experiencing this not in real time, because as you say, television coverage was in a completely different place at the point. So you're right at the front for the home leg. How do you experience that away, Leg? Like, how do you find out about the controversy and I guess the events of that night when you can't even watch the game?
6: Yeah, well, we did see it. Um I can't remember whether it was it was on the television live, um, but I have seen what you're explaining there many, many times. Which was which was so disappointing, um, and then obviously all the controversy that was to surround it afterwards. Um, and I, I think it was many years later. I think in in, in conversation um, about the referee, the officials. Um, not that it was proven 100%. I don't know where I'm sort of getting this from. But it was, and it was, it was brought about, that uh, they did find out that things, things happened that shouldn't have done. Let's put it that way.
4: Yeah, and there was question marks certainly around Inter. Not necessarily in this game, but but later on you had uh, the, the secretary of, of Inter Milan who was accused of taking part in match-fixing scandals. Granted, this yep. was about eight years later. The, the European Cup semi final against Derby County, when he had gone to Juventus in seventy three, was well, well, he was under allegations. It's like I mean, he was never found guilty, but there was definitely a, a bit of a cloud around the whole yeah. thing.
6: Yeah, it was so disappointing at the time because it was you know Liverpool with the Merseyside was the place to be with mm. the music, with the with the humour, with, certainly with the football with Liverpool and and Everton. Um, that had great teams. So this, we were flying, the Shankly team. Everything was wonderful. The cup was in full flow. It was, so the expectation was there, you know, to win, go and win the European Cup would have been massive at that time. And to have it taken away the way it was was so disappointing. So even for me as a young lad, you know, people of a certain age will remember back, and I know there's so many Sort of thousands millions of Liverpool fans there in Ireland, but people of the same age will have will remember it. It was such a glorious opportunity that was taken away from us
4: It was Liverpool's first season in Europe. It must have been a pretty exciting borderline exotic thing having uh, Inter Milan come to town and and being at those european nights
6: ah. Oh. You know, just being there, sitting there on the front row at Anfield and Inter Milan coming, I think it was something a legendary, Manager Herrera, I think his name was. Hernanio Herrera, yeah. Uh, he, was, he was one of the big names then in in, in world football, never mind European football. So th- this was so exciting. And I can remember the steam coming off the cop that night. It was hard to actually watch the game when, just as an imp- imp- impressive sort of 11-year-old just sitting there looking up and at this mass of swaying people them singing, and in the end them singing, go back to Italy, and it was all it was just fantastic it was, as growing up as being a Liverpool fan it's certainly the youngster, and coming out of the second division, and then taking a the grip of the um, the first division, and then sort of going to conquer Europe was just a great feat in itself but we were all there we were all with the players we were all with Shankly it was it was a great moment nice to reminisce by the way
3: (laughs) yeah well I was going to say it is in a weird way sometimes these defeats take on uh, a legend of their own but they also feed the desire for a club and a team and a city to conquer like you as an 11-year-old end up being part of the team who eventually wins the European Cup for the City of Liverpool.
6: And it it was, it become a bit of a a holy grail, as we're saying with Manchester City. Now it makes no difference when you haven't won something, which is quite precious. Um, It makes that desire to go and do it, and it keeps eluding you. And you think, so that heartbreak of the guys of the 60s was our motivation in the 70s so to sort of drive forward and, and grasp it. Uh, and once you break that, it became, you understood Europe, you had a way of playing in European football, um, taking care of the away leg, making sure then the spirit of Anfield would take over. Almost things. 77 men um, against Moutinho Gladbach in Rome, sort of opened the doors to win it. Yes, we'd won the uh, UEFA Cup in 72, 73, 75, 76, but winning the European Cup was then the Holy Grail and to do it in 78 and then my special moment, 81. It was the wonderful moments to come, but it was driven by those guys in the 60s.
4: How important was that, I guess, then for, for yourself to have that connection to the club so early? I, I, I guess you talk about it there, the, the idea that those moments of heartbreak kind of fuel the appetite to, to try and get over the line. But I, I guess your own sense of familiarity with that specific type of heartbreak was, was, was really important. The fact that you knew the club, you were watching the club, you weren't, you weren't a blow into Liverpool to, to say the least.
6: No, well, it, it was it was it was like that. We were just starting to start to of stake our, our name, and you know, goodness gracious, a, a, a team of youngsters called Ajax of Amsterdam um, give us a right sort of. Um, we thought they were the minnows, and they battered us five-one over in Amsterdam on a very foggy night. You know, you remember all these things, and and the heartache that it brought on. And Ajax went on, and Johann Cruyff went on to be wonderful players, world-class players. So all these things you're watching unfolding. See, we didn't have the satellite television that we have now, and they able to see multitude of games, but you've got these games on grainy television back in those mid-60s. The um, match of the day was, was starting back in the 64. So you were getting fed this thing, and you wanted more of it as a fan. You know, it was all standard. And then the cop was in full flow. So you witness it. So that not being able to have it, which was winning that European Cup, did fuel that. And it was wondrous going to other countries, watching the football uh, being played, what they were like. And then when I was to become part of it, was that great feeling, how you prepared to take on European opposition. So it was quite unique an absolute wonderful time to be a footballer and starting to conquer Europe
4: It wasn't a bad season that, that year for Liverpool I think they, they paraded the FA Cup that night, you're talking about there when when you beat Inter Milan in the first but, leg
6: and It was, that was again, we're <laughs> reminiscing that, was, that is still one of my greatest ever moments of of in our history because that has become something the FA Cup Of that was the holy grail. It was massive back in the day because it was a glamorous day out at Wembley. And to win the European Cup for the very first time for Liverpool Football Club, you know, coming out of the second division, winning the league, winning the cup, winning the league again, was just it was crazy. It was great times and you could believe that you could go and do anything. Anything was possible with this man.
4: I just have one last question, just kind of on the the, while we're on memory lane here. Like, how did your perception of away days specifically in Italy change down through the years? Obviously, there was an incredibly hostile atmosphere waiting for Liverpool in the return leg, but that hostile atmosphere doesn't ever change. You know, it it is the the, stereotype that going to Italy is not only a battle against uh, quite a, a robust set of individuals it is also a, a cauldron that you tend to be stepping into does that change at all does your relationship or your perception of, of away nights in Italy change over the decades
6: I think as a I think as a player I, I think it was it was always there you knew it was a cauldron um, that San Siro had such a name I never played there but the San Siro had such a name such uh, passionate as so though we felt we were passionate in England you, you had all this it was so vibrant away from you. You knew you were up against it. You knew that that crowd, as we always felt at Anfield, that they could sway officials, is that in Italy, you just knew playing for your national team, playing for um, your, your team. It was just, you knew that was going to be one of the biggest games. And it was, It you could go to Germany, you could go to Spain, and you would have. Atmospheres that were electric, there, as you said, was hostile and you knew that you had to, had to do it. It's, a, it's even the same now. I was very worried. My son wanted to go to, to um, Milan and I was wary of them going. Thankfully, in the end, they couldn't get flight, which was that, but it creates that sort of atmosphere and still does.
3: How hostile do you think it's going to be for Liverpool oh. tonight?
6: I think it's going to be massive, Um, possibly, thankfully. There's only going to be 50% capacity in there. and I think I was reading something. It's it's still going to be 40,000. Liverpool is huge once again. Uh, We became one of the biggest names in Europe in the 70s, and it is so now. So it would be massive in itself. Players will raise their game. Good players, great players that they have will raise their game again. They've they've wrestled me. uh, the title off Juventus uh, last season, and they're, they're proven as though they're on the way back, as is AC Milan. But we did enough to see off AC Milan, and I see no reason. It still, it still will be tight, but no, no reason why we shouldn't beat into.
3: I think one of the main successes of Klopp in uh, in recent seasons, and it's really since he's arrived, is that these games that Liverpool are the better team in, they have on balance tended to win them. We we kind of we there's a confidence when we talk about how well Liverpool will perform. There's no inconsistency. There's been no real flakiness in European football, maybe with a few exceptions over the last number of years, but generally, they win these games that they're supposed to win.
6: Yeah, it it is. He's he's got that sort of knack. I said to you before back in the sort of 60s and we learned from it. We had a knack in European football of how you're doing it. And, and it doesn't change. You've got to be that way where you, you go abroad and you stick together. And that is so important. I mean, as as a team, as units, defense midfield and attack, you keep together, you defend together, you attack at the right time. And all these things, Klopp seems to have that way of playing um, i think he plans for the, the the champions league games obviously more than the league cup or the FA cup games they take massive priority and so he gives them great focus which seems to and, and has proved great to Liverpool you know two two champions league finals is no no mean feat and and it's great to win one of them and um, it was sad the other one in kiev but hopefully hopefully um we have many good nights because English teams, once again, are going to be very, very hard to beat.
3: The other thing that's happened at the moment is that, uh, for whatever reason, everybody seems fit, which almost never happens. Uh, At the moment, there are some selection and headache issues, and uh, the bench is strong, and the players not making the bench is is pretty strong too. So with that comes uh, just an uptick in form, and and it's kind of a a virtuous circle.
6: It is. It's... Great captain fit. We, we, he was juggling so much last year, and some of the young lads who've come in in some of those European games were, were truly amazing uh, how they handle the situations. But now he's got them all fit. Now the selection headaches come in. Who plays? Probably the back four picks itself if they're all fit. Matapa's been excellent. But it's just that midfield area and the one position up front. I would imagine because Jotter has, has sort of done so well. Filling in, filling in, I shouldn't really say that. For Mane, for Salah, because they've been away. He's carried the team, scored the goals. I would think he'll come in for Bobby Firmino up front. And then there's the, what happens in midfield. Fabinho's a starter, and you're looking either side. I know people will say Henderson's not been great of late, but he has that experience. He has that energy. And then I think you need to keep the ball tonight, and I think that's where Thiago didn't play at the weekend. Didn't start. Sorry, and I think he's saving them for this game.
3: Uh, they're obviously Champions League contenders, given the the uh, strength and depth, the quality of the field, the uh, that they're playing, um, the the manager's understanding of it. And it was just interesting to see Trent Alexander Arnold not backing away from any of this, where with his comments about he was obviously asked Are you uh, in any way envious or jealous of Manchester City? He's like, well, why would we be? You know, we we've won we've won the competition that they can't win. It's not a knock on them, but we've won this. So they're, they're feeling themselves and they're feeling self-confident. So
6: yeah, there is. I, I thought it was, uh, it was, he was asked that, trying to sort of fuel something. And, and as you say, he didn't shy away from it. He said, yeah, Manchester City, and they are a wonderful side. I love watching them. Uh, they were they were truly terrific last night. But yes, they do have that holy grail. Like, Liverpool have been able to mount it to win that title, and they had that disappointment against Chelsea last year, which will fuel their ambition. But Trent is rightly saying, is that, yes, we can compete with you on, on the same levels. Liverpool, we've got Leeds next midweek, which should be our game in hand. So it, it'll, it'll hopefully transpire that it'll still be a title race. But but it, it's hard because I did feel for Trent the way he got asked of it. But he
4: just, he handled it very, very well, the, the young man. Uh, just uh, like, if you kind of zoom out a little bit from it, at the end of the season, I know this is not how Jurgen Klopp is going to uh, prioritise things whatsoever, but does the Champions League take precedence over the Premier League? Because to win the Premier League from this position, you would say, would be unbelievably sweet. And there is still kind of an inkling of a chance there.
6: I, I think the Premier League should always be bread and butter. Um, it's It's been ever thus. Yes, the Champions League is wonderful. I always would like to think that the guys do. And at this moment, there still is a chance of it. Um, And it will be juggling the both of them. There won't be priority in them at the moment. I would think he knows that there still is a chance with this team, the way they're playing, with um, everybody fit. And the big game when it comes up against Manchester City will be absolutely huge. And that's a little bit of a way... So there's there's no way to sort of identify, right, let's put all our eggs into the Champions League basket. It's still all to play for. And there's still, as we speak, Liverpool are fighting on four fronts at the moment. Mm.
3: Yeah, uh, the, the, the difficulty, that little patch they had where things didn't go their way, that made everybody just feel like the title race was over. Um, the recovery of form they've had would suggest that they can not see this out for the rest of the season Are Manchester City just too good at the moment though, Phil? Is that the problem?
6: <laughs> that, that, that is a real difficult one As I've just said you, Manchester City are a, and it, it's when you get on those runs Manchester City you, I look at them sometimes and that, you go from Christmas through to the end of the season Manchester City can win every football match They are that good If they keep their best players fit um, they can win every football match. My my Liverpool team, fantastic team. We can go. We can win all our games. And you do have that little bit of a doubt that can we do that? Whereas you you go and City can easily do that. And that is to just there's something about my team which is which is just slightly different than, than Manchester City. We can maybe have that sort of one slip up where you don't feel like Manchester City can. They are in that flow at the moment. And it goes it's not just the team, it goes through individuals. You're looking at Raheem Sterling coming back, you see Bernardo Silva last night. You know, he was out at one point and he's come back a better player, John Stones has. And so this man Guardiola makes players even better. And and I think that that is the worry for us all is that these, I cannot wait until Pep leaves because I think he's the most, uh, a, a most sensational <laughs> coach.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an issue, all right. There's no sign of that happening anytime soon. Uh, but maybe, look, he's... Well,
6: due, are you sure? He,
3: he's due a trip to New York, right? He's a couple of years to hang out and watch some basketball or something. <laughs> Phil, good stuff. Great to have you with us. Thanks.
6: Guys, great stuff. Enjoy the game tonight.
3: Cheers. Um, is, there, is there any sign of Pep? Pep? Like, so in the immediate aftermath of the Super Bowl, when Sean McVeigh pregame, it was like it was confirmed that he's staying mm. by one of the insiders. And then afterwards, he was asked about it. He was like, Well, we'll see. It's like, What? I mean, these um, super intense coaches sometimes do decide to. So if they were to win the Champions League, would he walk away? Is there a possibility?
4: I'm not sure Pep would walk away with that lack of notice, to be honest. I think that we're probably going to know about Pep's decision probably at this point in the season, the season it does happen. It does feel that he would telegraph it a little bit. No, I don't know. You don't
3: know? Uh, uh, not uh, lame duck? No. Can't be a lame duck.
4: Yeah, I guess, I, I guess not. I, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, is it, is it just mission accomplished once he gets... To, to, to the end of the season and he gets the Champions League trophy in his hands maybe it is maybe he also wants to keep earning money maybe he wants to I don't know to, maybe, maybe that's it maybe that's the Everest and that's it Done. put the feet up but I think he's I think he's way too intense a coach as you say there to, to just not coach football team anymore unless he's like like he's not Pep Guardiola and his current guys is not going to be an international manager he could be a pundit <sighs> like I mean He'd like there's a reason why Roy Keane wants to get back into management a couple of weeks ago I mean there's there's something missing Maybe. Punditry won't scratch the itch that Pep Guardiola will develop. Well, he could be a, he could go on a
3: lecture series, you know.
4: Yeah, again, I, I think it's it's winning. It has, to and then like I mean, if you win one, it's like back to back Champions Leagues. It's like match match to Real Madrid back to back to back.
3: Maybe, maybe. Um, strange things do happen in football. Eight thirty four this morning here on OTBAM. OTBAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning, start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. Quick run through the newspaper headlines for you before we get to this week's virtual insanity Messi fails to find spark with Champions League penalty that was the uh, was it a bad penalty was it a great save a bit of both 14 uh, year old punched a police officer Matt Lawton talking about the uh, cocaine problem the football has we'll play that for you a little bit later on Tiger Roll is out of the entry Grand National because of the weights um, I thought he was very very solid that's Brian Driscoll talking about Joey Carber who's going to be on the show a little bit later on and uh, back page some of the tabloids for you Portuguese man of four Portuguese men of four this is all the great Portuguese football that you're seeing yesterday. The uh, Daily Mirror obviously enjoying it at a very elemental level. They were they were very uh, turned on by the football last night. Salah and Mane don't booze, so they cruise. That's a better tab of the morning for you, isn't it? Jurgen Klopp says that because Mo Salah and Sadio Mane don't drink, therefore they will be uh, quickly back to top form after the travel and exhaustion. And then the Irish Times has that picture, as I've already showed you, of... Kenny Mbappe sticking the ball through the legs of Thibaut Courtois last night. And then they also have Cristiano Ronaldo scoring his goal with that kind of stereotypical Ronaldo body shape that you see there. Uh Silva Bullet is the headline on the back of the sun. And I am their rock. Kind of messianic. But Dean Rock is saying it's up to him and the Elder Statesman to keep the kids' heads up. Uh Trent, it's Red Six City Nil. That's the overall score on how many Champions Leagues European Cups. Liverpool have won. Wimbledon will not ban Djokovic. This is after his uh, half-hour interview with the BBC. And a Portuguese does it. United see off seagulls as city light up Lisbon. Again, that's the, the theme of the morning. This rating is absurd. It's not fair or safe to ask so much of Tiger Roll. Uh, here's Ronnie. It's the back page of the headline in the Daily Mail. And they also have the story. Still no release date for the IRFU's women's report. So, the new CEO is in. And... Um, on the 20th of January, the IRFU told Sportsmail the first of these two reports was imminent, but when contacted yesterday, the union could not specify when the document would be made available. So that's two weeks further on. It won't be this week. It's still being finalised, they said. So obviously it'll be next week at the earliest, and then all the rest of them are pretty much the same. More drugs and skaters, doping cases, is the teenage um, Russian figure skater. Three different types of heart medicine, and that's Bernardo Silva celebrating the 5-0 win yesterday. So uh, at 8.37, John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you.
7: Geron Owen, how are you doing?
3: Very well, how are you?
7: Great, good form.
3: Yeah, I suspect so. We're going to talk about why you're in such good form, uh, literally and metaphorically, in just a
7: moment. But what's going on in the world of sport? Well, takeaways, guys, from last night. Mbappe, you'd pay good money to see him. Fantastic goal and injury time there, the way he cut inside off the left, like weave through two players and put it under the legs of Courtois. This is what Kylian Mbappé is all about. So that 1-0 win for Paris Saint-Germain against Real Madrid. Pity we don't have away goals. That is obviously going to be a talking point going forward. Uh, Man City, just like to me, they're absolute bankers for the Champions League. Uh, Rodri is in there now and he's the fulcrum with Bernardo Silva and Raheem Sterling playing out of their skin. Silva with two goals in the 5-0 win in Lisbon against Sporting. That was the first leg. Man United beating Brighton 2-0 in the Premier League, but didn't have it all their own way. Like Jakob Motor forced a brilliant save from De Gea, who's been turned inside out in terms of his own confidence. Uh, Basuma had a chance, but then Brighton getting caught in, this, in possession. Ronaldo scoring his first goal in seven. Then Dunk got sent off, and that was pretty much it. Bruno Fernandes adding the icing then in the injury time. So back up to fourth in the Premier League. Liverpool in Milan tonight at the San Siro. Going to take a while, I think, for that new stadium to be developed. So there's still time to be... Uh, getting onto a plane and going to Italy and seeing the Sands here if you haven't yet I haven't seen it yet I can't wait to see it at some stage where they play Inter tonight Luis Diaz could make his first uh, appearance in Europe for the Reds Jordan Henderson is fit an 8 o'clock start for that NUIG against UL in the Sigerson Cup tonight at half 7 in Carlo and racing today at Dundalk lads 10 past 1 just the quotes from Michael O'Leary uh, since we are responsible for the welfare of Tiger Row we must protect him from the idiotic opinion of this handicapper, we therefore regret to announce he will not run in this year's Grand National. Instead, Tiger Roll will be trained for the cross-country at Cheltenham and there's every likelihood that win, lose or draw, this will be his last race course appearance. He will then return home for his well-earned retirement here in Gigginstan for the rest of his days. It is a shame.
3: Uh, soft diplomacy there from Michael O'Leary to try and change the handicapper's mind. This idiot. Uh, I've never commented on referees and I'm not going to change the habit of a lifetime for this clown <laughs> the
7: famous Ron Atkinson quote it's a shame uh, and I don't really buy the weight or the rating argument in 1977 Red Rum won his third Grand National off 11 stone 8 and he won it by half the track Tiger Row was brilliant in the cross country last year the Grand National is a specialist race he was an easy winner of it three years ago for older horses uh, 12 years of age I don't think is too much of an obstacle so Michael O'Leary is just shiting on here Well, he took him out of the race last year, and look, uh, Michael Leary had here the Echo, I believe, died entry a few years ago. So there is that in his mind. He's also won the Grand National three times with Rule the World and Tiger Roll on a couple of occasions. Maybe records and all that kind of thing doesn't matter as much as the horse's welfare. So he does pay the bills, but it is a real shame because I do think like a row with a handicapper or an administrator is less important to me if, as long as the horse is safe and as long as conditions are safe and conditions are much safer now at the Grand National than they were of racing capturing the imagination. Racing's had a very bad year public relations-wise. This would be a fantastic uh, tilt at, at something to emulate red rum and it's not going to happen now. So the safety argument isn't something you think is, is actually uh, significant? No, not at all. The Grand National is not the race it was, and sadly for me, it's not the race it was. The Grand National was something I just was obsessed about growing up. Now it's just a, it's just a normal handicap with with just different styled fences. It's not the race in any way. Uh, this the fences are very much 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 safer. And to be honest, it's not a jumping test anymore. Tiger Roll would not have got a round entry in the old Grand National; he would have fallen. Okay. Right. Okay, so.
3: so O'Leary's just picking a fight here because he likes to pick a fight, well, uh, and maybe he wasn't going to go for
7: this race anyway. It's hard; like it's, it's just sad. Like it's just it's it, like it's, it's just a shame. Like you he should, he should have run last year. he should have run this year. Twelve is like loads of horses have won the Grand National. Twelve years of age, horses generally mature. I know he's a French bred, but horses generally mature between the ages of nine and twelve over extreme distances of the Grand National. Also, the Grand National is two it's less than it used to be. It's a different race; it's a much easier race to win now. Okay,
3: all right. It's eight forty one. It's time for us to get into it. Virtual insanity.
6: You have entered Power Drive Oh
3: wow Ah in your life Have you seen anything like it So uh, an 80 to 1 winner A couple of weeks ago A 25 to 1 winner Last weekend John Duggan is on The hottest of hot
7: streaks That's very Donny Dargo Isn't it that intro um, Yeah Scotty Sheffer folks Headline tip we got to I suppose Eat the ice cream About that one uh, We great. he's just He's just rolled his eyes
4: here Because he knows what's coming there. I know it's coming For God's sake What's that? It's going to be Oh, do you know what Daddy Darko is? (laughs) (laughs) Do you? Yes, of course I do, John Okay, that's alright No, he always says that And he doesn't Mad world So there was a song But apart from that What do you mean apart from that? It's the only thing that's worth Actually, the the, the pop culture references Are even more fun With the Jumeirah quiet music Underneath Yes, I agree, John. I wholeheartedly agree with that sentence. You should be good you should be good for me. Collected money in the last few days. John, my wallet has never been heavier, thanks to you. I
7: love you. Uh, so, Scotty Scheffler won the Phoenix <laughs> Open in a playoff at uh, 25-1 last week, so that was the headline pick. And we're going to go to uh, California now oh. for the Genesis Invitational over the next few days. Oh, no. <laughs> so, we're going to... If you could just maybe bring the music down a little bit, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> Rory McIlroy is the headline tip uh, this week, folks. Five each way, 22-1. One for 50. It's getting louder there. Uh, oh my God. Uh, Rory McIlroy. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, uh, what was it? Cornelio again. <laughs> <laughs> kill the music, please. Kill the music, kill the music, kill the music. Uh, so Rory McIlroy, 5 2 two 22-1. What am I looking at in this tournament? I'm looking at Uh, players that the top 10 in the world during this tournament this week in the Genesis Invitational and you have to expect the one the top 10 will win but I was looking at a couple of things here I was looking at price and also value here and also uh, like Rory uh, McIlroy can turn up any week and win now sometimes he gets in his own way it's happened in Dubai a couple of times but he was fourth in this in 2019 he was tied for fifth uh, the following year uh, at whatever four to five or one a place for eight places, I think Rory McIlroy is a very strong headline recommendation each way this week. In a course he really likes, Riviera, twenty-two to one for five each way. He's the headline selection. The second one is Xander Schauffele for four each way, twenty-five to one. The Olympic champion was a shot out of the playoff in Phoenix last week and he's double the price of Patrick Cantlay. Now, Patrick Cantlay is playing probably the best golf in the world at the moment, but Xander Schauffele has got the all-round game, hits it a mile off the tee, has been never worse than 23rd and four starts in Riviera in the Genesis Invitational. I think at 25-1, to 1, he's a value bet each way this week for four each way. So 80% of the money this week has gone on three players, Rory Schauffele, and the third one is Matt Fitzpatrick from England. 33-1 to 1 for three each way. Amazingly, he's strokes gained. He's the top player in America on the PGA Tour at the moment. He was 6th at Pebble Beach, 10th last week at the Phoenix Open. and He was 5th in this last year. Plays tough course as well. Great putter of the ball. Matt Fitzpatrick, I think he's working really, really hard. And a 33-1, to 1, he's worth three each way. And then the three outsiders for a euro each way, the three of them. Uh, Robert McIntyre um, has got something about him. He's 125 to 1. He's been twice in the top 15 the last couple of weeks in the UAE. He played Riviera in the US amateur in 2017, so he has seen the course before. He hits a, a draw, uh, but he's a left hander, so I think that'll suit him at this course. And I think he's a very good putter as well. Robert McIntyre for Euro Each Way, 125 to 1. And the two lads who played the US amateur final in 2017 dug in. Is 150 to one for a euro each way. Was in the top five in approach last week in Phoenix, but didn't put very well. But puts better on the Poa greens. He's going to face this week, so he could be worth a, a euro each way to make the frame. And the other one, Doc Redman, is 300 to one. I've noticed Doc because he played well at Pebble Beach and also at Torrey Pines in spots. Um, loves the course, obviously, from his US amateur win, Doc Redman, at 300-1 to one for a euro each way. So Doc Redman, Doug Gim, and Robert McIntyre, the outsiders for very small money, but the three in descending order, Matt Fitzpatrick, Xander Schauffele, and the headline tip this week, folks. For Ireland, Rory McIlroy to get his 21st win on the PJ Tour to
3: come of age John good stuff that's this week's
7: virtual insanity
3: best of luck as well it is 8.45 Joey Carberry going to join us live here at around about 9.15 this morning first though we've been flying through our Gaelic football depth charts over the last few weeks right now we're bringing you a Kerry special it is Owen with Daryl Kaneja
5: OTB AM
4: OK, we are continuing our series of analysing the depth charts of the All-Ireland contenders in football. And we are turning our attention to Kerry this morning. All-Ireland winning captain Dara O'Connor is with us to analyse. Dara, how are you getting on? Not about at all, no one, how are you? Yeah, good. Uh, just before we get into the depth chart, because there's a lot of interesting things to get stuck into there. What's been your big takeaway, I guess, from the first couple of weeks in the league uh, under Jack O'Connor and his third reign?
0: suppose really you want to think that a lot of neutral observers and carry observers were looking out for work. How are we going to do it midfield um, in particular? Uh, David Mourne, obviously, is a long-term injury coming out of last year's Championship in Kerry. And you're looking for somebody to progress there. There was a lot of talk about um, Joseph O'Connor. Joe O'Connor Austin the with a very good Championship. And then he gets injured against and Finn Barres in the Club Championship. And uh, so you're looking, first game out uh, in the National League anyway was... At midfield that probably wouldn't be first choice uh, Adrian Spillane Sean O'Shea a bit of experimentation going on there probably wasn't experimented with long enough to go one game and when Kevin Feely did a bit of damage against Kildare in the second half I think they reverted to the lads who were coming back uh, David O'Connor and Jack Barry and uh, Saturday inside into me you'd have to say they played quite well against uh, a decent under midfield so that's the the the, the takeaway I suppose up to now, how, how are we doing at midfield how are we doing in terms of commanding position at tricky times in the game and that's what we'll be constantly looking out for over the next three or four league games as well
4: and given the way the game has developed over the last little while that's not necessarily isolated to who you pick at number eight and number nine obviously the the half backs and the half forwards come into that big time
0: that, that's it. I, I honestly thought, you know, let's say Sean O'Shea, for example, was a viable option at midfield, but I suppose it's a kind of a whole different mindset. I thought Sean O'Shea maybe was worth having a, a look at for three or four National League games, but obviously, I suppose the, the game against Kildare, where the game wasn't grabbed by the scuff of the neck by a lot of players, not just Sean O'Shea. I think they probably, had, you know, rushed to get the the natural midfielders back, but it's still an option on a bigger pitch and a drier deal in different circumstances. And, the way the the game is being played, it is very much horses for courses on a given day. And, uh, you know, Sean O'Shea, Jack is a fierce fan of of playing lads in their natural positions in their best positions. And we all know that Sean O'Shea is an excellent centre-forward. So he probably will be positioned there for a long, long time. But that's not to say if the case arose during the course of the the spring or early summer that maybe Sean O'Shea is an option against a particular type of opponent at midfield. It was worth experimenting with. Possibly, you know, experimenting that long or with it like, but um, you can't argue with David O'Connor's performance and Jack Barry's last night
4: against Tottenham. Absolutely not. Uh, well, let's have a look at your forwards first up, uh, Dara. We've been kind of looking at the forwards and working our way backwards so uh, for our radio listeners the starters in the half forward line are Adrian Spillane, Sean O'Shea and Joe Connor, and then your full forward line if you were picking the team would be Paulie Clifford, David Clifford and Paul Ganey the first thing that really jumps off the page to me here Dara is the size of the half forward line because I think that was the the, 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 the yeah. angle after Kildare wasn't it that there were three five foot something lads in there Adrian Spillane, Sean yeah. O'Shea and Joe O'Connor none of them are small lads
0: yeah, this is your fantasy football pick really for the first round of the championship. It's not to say that it might change from, from uh, game to game. Yeah. But it, yeah, it is deliberately aimed at putting a bit of size into the half forward line and positioning Sean O'Shea in his best position. Adrian Spillan has given you a lot. He mightn't, he might not be, I suppose, your go-to first choice midfielder, but he's certainly worth something. His grunt and his, um, work rate. Is worth something on a modern team. And, you know, he can play wing forward. And likewise, I think it's more intrigue than anything else with Joe O'Connor. Um, saw him a bit in the county championship the last couple of years. And, you know, he is a good footballer. He's a lovely side- sidestep, an intelligent player, good, you know, good in, in possession of the ball. And then you're saying, okay, where are your natural wing forwards? The Barrow Minehans, the Stephen O'Briens, and these lads, and Michal Burns. You say, oh, well, they might be later on in the year but I would like for the first round of the championship possibly just to see Kerry team go with size and athleticism and you get that with Spillane and Joe O'Connor um, I don't mean in any way because I'm certainly now six foot I wasn't a six foot guy myself but you know the old adage of kind of a good big guy is probably better than a good small guy Uh, in the modern game all other things being equal and that is your fantasy football selection really at that stage you know Edwin at 10 Joe Connor at 12 Sean chain between all six foot
4: plus and all give you options if you are struggling in the field how much not that they struggled in midfield at all that day against Jerome but how much is that All-Ireland semi-final defeat informing the physicality that, that you would be picking in your fantasy football half-forward line?
0: Well, I think it's being said, and even Pat Spillane said it on TV there lately, that clearly lack physicality. I don't think it's a question of physicality. I think it's a question of aggression. You can have a small, aggressive guy that would be extremely physical. I mean, Paul Galvinas was a six-foot, not exactly a small guy, but he was extremely physical and extremely combative in that area. And that's, that's probably what, what's, what, what you need. Um, every other you know Stephen O'Brien up until 2019 was a brilliant brilliant player and is still a very very good player you know he was one of the top wing forwards in the game Um, Dara Mindon likewise who's playing probably at 80% fitness at the moment and getting there and is a really good underage player and has a lot to prove at senior level but has had good performances at senior level but the throwing game I suppose, as you say, we didn't lose midfield that day, I think, to more damage against Mayo subsequently in the final at midfield than the day against Kerry. gets carried. But what we did lack, I suppose, is when the breach happened at midfield a few times, it was catastrophic, and it, it, it had a knock-on effect right through to the full-back line, and then the three goals conceded. And you're looking for lads around that area with a sense of responsibility. What that means is, you know, when, when the ball break doesn't break your way, and it breaks to the opposition or goes to the opposition, that Somebody 10, 15, 20 yards away makes that 20 yard sprint just to go to track the the, the hard running from the opposition through the middle or along the wings. And I think Spillane and Joe O'Connor would give you that. Uh, they'd have to be programmed like any other player I'm sure like to do that and um, not to say that the likes of Darren Main and Stephen O'Brien and Michal Burns I'll give you that but if and when they do make that tracking run and if and when they do catch up they're more physical in that area they're more likely to hold up the move and to give your backs a bit of a chance and that's what's informing the, the selection in that line
4: your full forward line then, when we look at that, it is Pauly Clifford, it is David Clifford and it is Paul Gainey. I, I assume, obviously, the way things are at the moment, Clifford and Gainey are your two inside forward lines and Pauly Clifford plays a little bit deeper. And, and really, if someone like Killian Splan or Tony Prosnan were to get into the team, they would need to be getting in ahead of David Clifford or, or Paul Gainey, right? Yeah,
0: it's a big ask. It's a big ask, I suppose. That there, there are no guarantees in any team selection, um, but David Clifford is... You know, home and hose and you keep him close to goal if at all possible and Paul Ganey went through possibly a patchy bit of form but he was being moved around an awful lot Paul Ganey is a lethal inside forward and still has it, you know, at that level even at club level last year I was watching him win a West Kerry final, early December I think it was and, you know, a game that he could very easily be disinterested in, he was outstanding his application, his work rate, his track there was a high ball kicked into him about 5 minutes to go in a game that there were 10 points up and he chased the length, didn't win the high ball, but chased the length of the field to win, to turn it over again. And you're saying, geez, this guy has a bit between his teeth. And he, if he's played in his natural environment with David Clifford inside, they're very, very dangerous, great football skills, good ball-winning skills as well. Uh, the last night against Dublin, Paul Ganey, ball was stalling out around the middle. And he obviously, to all anybody present, demanded a high ball, demanded it, stuck, took a step back from his man. And that showed a fierce sort of conflict. One, that the ball was played in his direction and two, that he demanded it and that he subsequently won the mark and kicked the ball over the bar. That tells me that he still has it at that level. You know, and OK, it's a league game in February, but it was a, you know, it, it was an important it, an important game and he he still has an awful lot to contribute there as a kind of an institutional memory there as a footballer, ball he was an all-star two years in a row a number of years ago and there was people saying okay just because he's 30 now or whatever and he's starting to turn he still has so much to offer that team you can take him off for 10, 15, 20 minutes to go but he will give you his all in that in that line and himself and David Clifford inside you'd have to put Paddy out obviously and um, the fluidity of movement in, in, in all the forward lines at the moment will dictate that you, you it's a luxury even to have two inside at any one time. You expect David Clifford, you expect Paul Ganey to track back when needs most and they you know, they have a willingness to do that most of the time and uh, get hands on, on defenders coming out with the ball. You know, that's 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 critical to to, to, to the last the other
4: side of the field. So, so how does that, that Paulie Clifford role work then in terms of say instructions to the team because it felt last year at times early in the championship Sean O'Shea were going closer to goal and then obviously at the start of the campaign this year Sean O'Shea was at midfield so Paulie naturally fitted into an 11 type role that kind of gets muddied at times when you have Sean O'Shea sitting as, as a half forward does it or, or, or can Pauly kind of fit in wherever the gaps are?
0: I, I think Paul is definitely can do that, you know. And that's not to say that I mean the previous management deployed Charlie O'Shea nearer the goal and then, like you said, out the field as well. And that can be right in a given set of circumstances, but really you want you want to score, you want to, you want forwards scoring, and there you have in, in that lineup, you have four scoring forwards at least, and the other two lads can score. Adrian Splane and Joe Connor can score. Like Daromine had scored a goal the last night and created a lot of havoc as well, but. Uh, if you have four scoring forwards that will guarantee, you know, that they'll have numbers and brackets after their names, you know, you're 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 on the a winner there straight away. And uh, I, I do think that you know, Paddy Clifford has the game intelligence to to see as the game progresses, see to play what's in front of him. You know, if Sean Eich has gone in Clifford drifts out, if not that he 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 he's the go-to guy for the receiving ball, um, and O'Shea is kind of like do Walsh of old, where you know there's constant motion, and he's in a position to receive the ball, and um, that's invaluable for somebody where the heat is coming on. Let's say if you, if you have the likes of. Let's say Paul Murphy or Tyke Morley in possession of the ball in the half back line, genuine heat is coming on as was in the, last, the first ten minutes against Dublin in the in the national league in the last day. Even that you need somebody like Sean O'Shea presenting with a yard of space between him and his man, and Sean O'Shea has that has that game, and Paddy Clifford has that game. They're both very comfortable in possession, both comfortable receiving the ball with their back to goal, with genuine heat you know on their back as they're receiving the pass. And players like Tyke Morley, like Paul Murphy, need to know that when Sean O'Shea or, or, or uh, Paddy Clifford receive the ball that they're not going to spill it because that's that's where the trouble starts really and that's where Kerry's trouble has started saw in, in Kildare the last of a far in possession of the ball gets turned over because there's no genuine outlet there mm. but if you have Paddy Clifford and Sean O'Shea screaming for possession demanding possession with, a, with an opposition man right up their back like you still have to trust that they're going to win that, you know, that they're going to secure possession and not spin it and, and not make you look like a fool as a halfback as well. And I think those two lads have it. So I think uh, O'Shea and Clifford have the game intelligence to find those pockets of space to receive those overballs And with ball in hand, they're very creative and very comfortable.
4: We're just going to skip on to the backs here, Dara. And I think from the Dublin game, you had six backs who played well so the question was who drops out when Gavin White comes back in because he's too good not to start so uh, you've opted for uh, Dan Donoghue going to the bench yeah. in the context of that and, and Bruno Bjogliak going into, into the full backline Bjogliak in fairness Tara has been one of Kerry's better performers over the last three years while the hue might be one of disappointment around Kerry in general Bjogliak has really seemed to live up to his potential now over the last couple of seasons so can he do that same damage from, from cornerback as he's been doing in the halfback line uh, you
0: know Tom, Tom O'Sullivan tends to do a certain amount of damage from yeah. cornerback particularly at club level, sometimes at inter-county level, and Brian has that force to get him out there. I mean, you know, cornerbacks and wingbacks are very interchangeable. You know, you find yourself in that position over the course of the game anyway. Or well, he would have won an all Ireland minor medal as a full-back, would have played a lot of Schools football is a full back, plays a lot of club football at fullback and runs the length of the field, which is probably a bit easier to do at club level than it would be maybe at inter-county level when the, the attrition once he gets the half back line it, you know starts to happen. Um, really Dan, I don't know who is very looking to be on this team because you know possession is nine tenths of the law, he hasn't put a foot wrong all yeah. year. This is just preempting, I suppose, novice season, you know, a fresher season really for Dan and that, you know, once the championship comes around that probably there will be six backs. Um, more accomplished than him there. But I think would be, you know if he has an excellent league campaign and you come to the first round of the championship and he's not selected, he can feel hard done by. But I, obviously, like every other company panel, um, I'd say training ground form will dictate all, all the things being equal, all players being available free of injury and all that. That there you have um, I don't think you could fit in Dan O'Donnell who of him Begley Jason Foley Tom Sullivan Paul Murphy Tyke Morley or Gavin White um, and in that case I have no problem putting Brian Begley um, back in the corner because he has played there he's comfortable there and yeah he can he can still do his runs just like Tom Sullivan does his runs like provided the, the cover is, is there behind him and um, is, you know establishing himself as a Kerry as senior into county football and the last day even against Dublin in the early phases of the game you know the game in Dublin were a bit more intense in their game you know, he was jumping and diving and breaking balls, securing it in wet conditions. And the only, th- the only element that Brian has to bring to his game now at this stage is, you know, I suppose it's unfair to compare him to another former clubmate, Tomas O'Shea, who used to, you know, have a finished product. To you know, Brian, got a goal against Cork, got a goal against Meath in the championship in the, in the Super Eights a couple of years ago. He needs to do that consistently and needs to, you know, take take it on himself and trust himself and back himself when he gets into those positions because he's an excellent kicker. Um his quality of his passing the last step from the half back line was excellent. But that's not to say he couldn't do the same from the full back line, um, provided you were dominating it at midfield and a lot of this is to by midfield, you know, one way traffic, which as we know it doesn't always happen. But I would have no issue with Brian as a as a cornerback or as a impact
4: the, the other uh, options there that you have down in the bench in defence, Mike Breen, who obviously broke through for Kerry last year and, and was exceptional, and, and Dylan Casey, who was exceptional in uh, the, the jersey of Austin Stacks over the course of the winter. Like, I mean, people getting ahead of themselves, uh, possibly including myself, were saying that Dylan Casey could potentially be a, a full back straight yeah. away for Kerry. I guess a victim of Stacks' own success that he's not going to get a look in too early in the season. But from what you've seen, is, is, there, is the hype real, I guess, about Dylan Casey? Right.
0: Yeah, it's not so much hype. What I think people like about Dylan Casey is you're looking at the opposition's best forward and after they played Austin Stacks in the Championship and right through the Munster Championship, the opposition's best forward didn't have a good game. So you're saying, okay, what happened there? Was it really tight marking? Was it in-your-face marking? Was it cynical play? Was it what? And all the way up through the last year's championship right through to the muster final against St. Barr Still in case he kept really quality forwards quite. So he obviously has something. He's one of these defenders that probably might get involved in, you know, supporting a run up the field or finishing a run like you know Bentley there, Thomas Sullivan or something like that. But he keeps good um good good forwards, top class forwards at club level in particular, quite. And these are forwards like John O'Shea, David Clifford um Sherlock from from Central Finboro. So he keeps these lads quiet, which is worth it. You know, I think Kerry don't have a huge wealth of those types of players. Even, you know, you look at our you know, an all-star cornerback like Tom Sullivan is probably known more for his offensive play than for his defensive play. And I suppose Dublin would have found out three years ago now in the All Ireland final that if you even as recently as the league game bottom third last year between Kerry and Dublin, where they obviously you know made a tactic of um, putting in just high ball and saying, listen, we don't, tr- we, if we trust the carry full battery, we won't be able to deal with that. I think the likes of Dylan Casey is one of the rare breeds of defender in carry that wants to defend and that needs to defend and that sees himself as a fella that keeps good performance quiet. And that's, you know, that's his value and his graph,
4: I'm sure, would be rising again, provided he remains injury free. Yeah. Um, when we look then at the midfield, sorry, actually, just before that, just one other question I had on the defence, just with regards to that man marking job. Is there a way in which Kerry are going to be able to live without their top man marker if he does become that on the pitch? Like, Are we seeing a paddy-tally system, basically, Dara, uh, so far in this league campaign, which would make allowances for people not being at the top of their game man-marking-wise and, and maybe there's, there's a system in place that will allow Kerry's vulnerabilities to be remedied somewhat?
0: I'm sure every team has that kind of a thing. I think it's probably too early to say you know i I, I certainly can't say they'm walking away from Kerry games so far issue and said, oh there's paddy tally's imprint on, on the game. I'm sure there's plenty of other coaches in there telling them what to do in a defensive setup as well you know um so um you'd have to think that you know tally will br- you know will bring something to the to the to the table and, and that will manifest itself over the course of the year you'd have to you'd have to think but I mean, Kerry's, Kerry's big issue over the last number of years has been, you know, just these breaches that happen out of the field and don't get spent in time. You know, look at the, some of the, the best goals that have been scored in Croke Park in the last number of years, you know, have seen. Players run through the middle and you know stick it in the net, and it's usually carried the receiving end of it. They're the ones that stick out in our mind anyway. As carry men, you say, how oh, did that happen? Mm. And you, you can break it down all you want. You can see, you know, all merchants go over the balls from the throw-in, like in Dublin. It's not just against Kerry, the doubles score like that. But you know, as as a carry person, you're saying, why is this happening? Why you know this this shouldn't be happening? Uh, Conor McKenna's goal last year against against carry uh, as well, where you can see it coming, you know, a, a, a bit off. You know that scramble defence isn't there. Um, players are kind of minding their own patch, and then when they sense the danger, it's probably too late. Um, I think I think no defender, no, you know, no matter how good they are, you know, they're going to be de- dependent on, on the heat that's coming on further out the field. When it's one and one or two and one, you know, I mean, Larkin O'Dell had a had a chance there the last day, Dean Rock uh, inside him, and just it was because it was a bad pass that should have finished in another classic Kerry goal concession. You know where. There's a guy on his own. It was Jack, actually Jack Barry, that was chasing Larkin and the last day, and you're kind of wondering how did that happen? Well, you know, I was, and there are the, the issues that need to be broken down and say, look, we can't, this can't keep repeating itself. There are, there are warning signs in the National League that by the time you come to Championship, are too late to be rectified. And famously, Gary people would say, the the Championship isn't exposing those weaknesses for them in Championship football in the National League, certainly didn't last year. It was all rosy until you hit that. You know, the real top top teams, the Tyrone's, the Dublin's, the Mayo's, and these teams, um, you know, they they would expose. So, coming towards the end of this year's league campaign, I'd expect Kerry like let's say their last two games are Armagh and Tyrone. So, you know, they'll they'll fairly iron out a few pieces and Kerry's back line if they're there.
4: That's for sure. Uh, the midfield, then you're going with Diarmuid O'Connor and Jack Barry as your starters. David Moran and another Stacksman, Greg Horn, on the bench. There I, is this: you're starting eight and nine if if proves improves his fitness for the start of championship.
0: If Moran proves his fitness, you'd have to say he still has a role to play, but there's a lot of uncertainty. He needs to yeah. his injury, right? It all depends on how he's going, you know, I suppose. But when he does come back, it was a serious enough injury, I would say. I mean, Moran's value to the carry team was shown in the heat of battle against Tyrone, even where you know Tyrone couldn't get a foothold around the middle there with, with or there his ability to slow the game down and to 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 uh, you know secure possession and make sure that, you know a decent ball goes into power line look that's that's still there. All those things are still there. But you know there is a bit of expectation around Jim O'Connor because he was such an outstanding underage player because he's so athletic. Um watching him even the last night, you know, he he played very, very well. I think that he got mad of the match on the, on the TV and he, he you know, he has a high, high skill level. There was a few instances there the last day in wet slippery conditions where his ball control was really, really good. Um but looking at him and saying, Okay, you your classic number eight midfielders, you know, I'm going you can go back to my time and say Darrow Shea, who was a dominant, very dominant personality around the middle. When Darren went up for the ball, he hurt you. When he came down for the ball, he hurt you <laughs> with the ball, he, he hurt you. Diarmuid is still learning that um, you know uh, you look at Con- Patrick's catch in the All-Ireland final last year against Mayo and you'd say wonder would Diarmuid O'Connor do that I think he's well capable of doing it but he, the frame you know he's a big lad but he probably could take another half a stone on him you know and you know I mean with the, with the greatest respect to that when, when he went up he or she would secure a half circle around himself, and he'd get the ball, and he'd come down. And he'd probably hurt you on the way down as mm. well, physically. Like, and that's that's the way it should be. It's like you know, um, Dearmer went up very honestly the last day. I think it was with Brian Howard in the Dublin game, where he's you know going up and, on a wet night, you know, hoping to make a majestic clean catch. Did actually catch it once or twice, but then when he came down, the ball spilled. And again, that's to be expected on a wet night with you know good physicality on the middle, but. He's learning that, I suppose. There's no question about his ability to eat up the ground once he gets possession, if it opens up in front of him, left and right, he's very skillful. can hurt you on the scoreboard as well. But he needs to bring that element to his game to make him the leading number eight midfielder, you know, inside here in Kerry, so then that you have a guy that will, you know, be a perfect foil for him. And that's the way it's always been, you know, traditionally with midfields, particularly in Kerry. Dara Shea was the constant, and then you had nine or ten different partners over the course of the career. David Moore became that and he had, I'm sure, a load of midfield partners over the last 10, 15 years as well. So I think, you know, this is a kind of a changing of the guard in a way like David Moore is still a lot to contribute to carry football. Of course he does. He's still probably the best midfielder in club football, championship football in Kerry. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it would be nice to see DiEMO O'Connor, you know, continue on with his good home form and become that leading heavyweight uh, in every single way, midfielder in in the county, he has the capacity. And so, um, I, th- I think he has the ability to do so, and I think there's a w- with that expectation that's in Kerry of Gearóid O'Connor, there's a lot of confidence as well that he's going to be able to do that because you would know, know the land, But from what I'm hearing, he's a great attitude, and you know that's that's half the
4: battle. Absolutely. The last thing I did want to touch on was uh, the goalkeeper. We kind of glossed over the goalkeeper position yeah. uh, with our two depth charts so far, but um, this isn't like a Niall Morgan situation or a Rob Henley situation. This is still up for grabs, I would suggest, Dower, but Shane Murphy's obviously started very well this year, and Shane Ryan, you haven't done as his backup. Yeah,
0: um, Shane Ryan is, you know, obviously the early. This season has been squeezed out and again possession behind the law. Murphy hasn't done the whole pile wrong, even the goal that was disallowed the last night against Dublin. You could argue, you know, was pure bad luck. Um, uh, and the ball hits the, the, the post, hits his hand, and goes in. But what he gives you from restarts. Uh, I, I think with Shane Ryan, he, he's you know, he gives you a lot of confidence under the under the high ball, but Shane Murphy gives you probably a bit of a better restart, a bit more variety to the restart. That the trajectory of his kickout is more varied. Um, it was kind of the David Clark, Rob Henley argument with Mayo all those years ago. You know, is it easier to break their kick-out or to crack their kick-out with X or Y in gold? And with Shane Murphy, I think he has the ability to spot in the run-up to a kickout out that it, this requires a change, so the, the, the kick-out that I was about to plan just right now I'm going to change my mind in the run up and I think more so than Shane Ryan he's able to do that um, but both are very very good keepers both are very accomplished keepers but Shane Murphy is more of a football and and if it's you know again all things in an ideal conditions that, that there isn't a win there Shane gives you real long range pinging passes like over the top of a cover over the top of a screen and, and that's probably where he edges out uh, Shane Ryan but I'd have confidence in both
4: yeah, for sure. So uh, Shane Ryan would be your backup there. Just kind of a reminder of some of the other positions. Then you'd have the likes of Dan who Mike Breen, Dylan Casey in the Bats as the backup, David Moran as your backup in midfield, and then the likes of Dara Moynihan, Stephen O'Brien, Killian Spillane, michael Michal Burns as, as your backups in the forwards. Like, I mean, this really does paint a picture, Dara, as a, a team with serious depth more so than they've had it at any point, I'd say, in the last maybe even 10 years. <laughs>
0: I I think it's unusual. I wouldn't like to be trumpeting their their abilities to do damage later on in the year because we've been burnt I suppose the last Mm. number of years. League league has been really good. Monster championship has been really good and you've got to the All Ireland quarter semi finals, let's say, and it just hasn't happened for this group. But there is a consistency in terms of personnel even in this group right now, you know. It doesn't seem to be any bolters out there. All of those lads that, that would be on the on the list, the lads even that you haven't mentioned, Gavin Crowley, Graham Sullivan, Stefan O'Connor, as he comes back from you know he's probably the only bolter if he does come back from his injury yeah. in time. Um, you know, Jack Savage again is a bit of a bolter from the county championship. You know, Ian O'Connor from the belt that is in there at the moment, training, then you know, reward good in good form, being rewarded. Tony Branson in set in the world on fire at Sigerson level, you know, and. They, There's a consistency there in terms of the personnel. Um, There are no real surprises, and it's really unusual that, let's say, the second round of the National League would be damn close to your championship team. Really, you know, um, barring one or two lads that have have to come back to David Morans as a range of the Joe Connors, you know, the, the Mike Greens people that have stepped away in the last year or two or three, you know, like Sir Jack Sherwood, Tommy Welch, James, I don't know, probably Jonathan Knight, Mikey Ganey, Shane and all those lads, it was a natural thing for them to to probably step away. So there's a core group there at the moment, but there's a consistent group there as well. And, you know, it's Jack O'Connor's first year of a particular term in charge. I'm sure you know, Jack, knowing Jack he doesn't like comfort zones he doesn't like flatlining graphs. he doesn't like subs being comfortable so if they're not contributing something and putting the squeeze on somebody in possession of the jersey he won't be happy just like any other manager would be like. but um, there will be an element of getting to know you and I think you know that's the McGrath that's the opening rounds of the league and by the time the championship comes around I think they have a fair idea right now what their championship
4: team is. Yeah, and I think that probably plays into the point you made earlier on about the Munster Championship potentially not being a a great level of of competitiveness for a team, so they're really going hell for leather early in the year. Uh, You've been listening... 20 years ago. Well, sorry, yeah, I forgot about 2020, but we've blocked that out of the mind, haven't we? Yeah. That didn't happen. Um, You've been listening to All-Ireland Winning Captain Daryl Caneda go through his depth chart. Good stuff, Daryl. Great work. Thanks a million for that. We'll chat to you again soon. Cheers, on
5: OTBAM. A.M.
3: All right, it's 16 minutes past nine this morning. Now, the Tackle Your Feelings campaign was launched by Rugby Players Ireland and Zurich in 2016. It's funded by the Zurich Foundation. As part of the Tackle Your Feelings campaign, Rugby Players Ireland were joined by Joey Carberry to support the hashtag I'm Taking Control campaign, which provides people with the tools to take control of their mental well-being using sports psychology and positive psychology principles. And I'm delighted to say that Joey's been announced as the newest ambassador for Tackle Your Feelings is with us this morning here on OTBAM. Joey, good morning to you. How are you getting on?
5: Morning guys, how are you? Yeah,
3: can you talk to us a little bit about sports psychology and your interest in that field and and why you got interested in getting involved in this project in particular?
5: Um, I think it's really important um, for obviously just not just sports people but everyone in general and having the mental well-being. I know personally from when I was out with my injury for a while that there was some hard times physically but almost as much mentally. Um, So while I was working away on my physical side, I, I knew the importance of, the importance of working mentally as well. Um, and that I, I found that hugely encouraging for me and helped me get through um, the tough times. So having that base behind you and the support network is uh, massively important.
3: Is that something that you woke up to as a 18, 19, 20, 22 year old or was it actually something that when you were 15 you were coming through and reading sports psychology books and reading about kickers for example like I know Johnny Wilkinson was big into talking to people and getting help early on in his career so were you always interested in this?
5: Um, Probably not that early but um, when I started playing probably in crowded stadiums and um, under a bit more pressure um, I started to look into it a little bit more Um, and I think it's something that's helped me a lot throughout the years and um, it's something I'd definitely encourage anyone to give a go.
3: Because anytime I've read any sports psychology, you're reading it and you're going, this makes a lot of sense for a sports person, but actually it makes a lot of sense for real life too. It's basically uh, cognitive behavior therapy where you're thinking, I just need to think about what's happening at the moment and focus on that and everything else becomes external and then you can quiet your brain and actually make it do whatever you want it to do.
5: Yeah, massively, Like, just like you said. Um, I think it can be related to everyday practices as well, like if you're under pressure with your work or your time pressure. or It's just good ways to be able to relax yourself and um, de-stress a little bit because um, our, our mind can be a bit cluttered sometimes when you're stressed.
3: Do you have a routine? I mean, obviously you have a routine, but do you have a, a mental routine as well as a physical routine when you're taking big kicks?
5: Um, I suppose just trying to breathe and um, that's a big thing and um not worry too much about the outcome and more so just worry about two or three things that i think about myself like staying online and getting a good connection on the ball so um trying to take away the worries of missing it um is a big thing
3: various players um do the pick the piece of grass up and throw it away and like i'm getting rid of that thing johnny wilkinson used to have the hands cupped and i remember one time for a period of time he was like I'm just going to get the water that's in my hands the imaginary water that's in his hands to be still and when that's still he's ready to go I thought that was like completely amazing because the whole world is watching him going What are you doing with his hands and then years later he's like I'm holding water I'm keeping it still when that's still my
5: brain is still and I kick it do you have something similar to any of that kind of stuff? Um, probably not into that detail but I like w- w- when i have done my uh, my steps back and I'm I'm online with the ball and um, just to kind of feel my feet on the ground. Um, I just something I focus on standing there. Um, Not as technical as balancing the water, but it's um, just a little cue and then a few deep breaths and it settles me. It's the same principle, isn't it?
3: Like uh, I'm alive and present here. The grass is green. I feel
5: my feet. Exactly. It's the same principle and it's just something that Diverts your brain a little bit away from maybe the stress of the game or the the time in the game, um, and allows you to refocus back in on the ball.
4: Was that someone? Did someone tell you to do that? Was that a trick that you picked up from somebody else?
5: Um, probably. Uh, probably down the years, uh, people have told me, like uh, chatting with Richie Murphy a good bit when I was kicking, just to focus in on one thing rather than and not worry about anything else. Um, but it's something I've kind of learned myself as well um, and developed over the years during times where I haven't been kicking well and something that I could just refocus myself into.
4: Do you think you're a mentally stronger person now at the other side of the injuries that you mentioned there a moment ago than you were beforehand?
5: Yeah, massively. Massively, I think. Um, the injury taught me a lot about mentally myself and um, being able to get through it. and I suppose it uh it makes me extremely grateful as well to be back playing and to be healthy again. And um, we, we kind of take it for granted sometimes when you're a professional rugby player that you're just like, yeah, everything's good. And but when you actually been out and you miss it, and um, it's something you can't do for a while, I think uh, you really, really miss it. And um, so being able to be back out there and um, be back on the pitch, it's it's massive. I'm massively grateful for it.
4: What's the main emotion when you're not out there? Is it frustration? Is it anger or, or what's going through your head?
5: Um, frustration, I'd say. Um, so being able to deal with that frustration and I suppose channel it into the right areas and um, using the coping systems that are on the Tech of Your Feelings app helped me a lot as well. And um, being able to channel it all in and put it to good work um, because it, it can be extremely powerful as well. So Using those emotions for the better, uh, the betterment of you, I think, is important.
3: So you, you obviously had very uh, well-publicized issues with the the ankle for a period of time, and then you get back and you get fit again, and you play in November, and then you did the elbow. It must have been very difficult to deal with that when you're like, oh my god, I literally just got back. I'm 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 like finally feeling good about life again, and then this random injury happens.
5: I know, and I, I think the, the the key word there is random. It was literally just a freak accident where had his head been a few centimeters below it would have just missed me missed me completely but um yeah it was incredibly frustrating but um I was I was lucky it wasn't too serious and I could get back relatively quick
3: and when that happens are you like well at least it's not my ankle this is fine I can deal with this because I'm going to have to deal with this throughout my career because that's what's going to happen it's rugby I'm going to get some injuries but so long as it's nothing serious I'm going to be okay here
5: exactly i think um even though you do, you're out for a few weeks. It's you know, it's, the, it's not to the same extent of what I've been through. So um, knowing that I've been through something worse, um, weirdly makes it easier.
4: You were in a really interesting position then on Saturday because I guess you're from the the public perception anyway. They haven't seen a lot of you play over the last couple of months, and then on top of that, it's your first Six Nations start. I, I, is there anything in your head at all that that is telling you that you're not going to be ready for that because it definitely seemed that you'd, you'd hit the ground running completely on on Saturdays if you had been playing consecutively for the, for the past 10 weeks or something like that
5: um I think that comes back to uh, the environment that we're in and the preparation that we we um, we do during the weeks and I felt like I was ready and like you said I'd played a few games before mentally and coming into that game and I knew all I had to do was go out and do my job and, and obviously very disappointing with the results, uh, but it showed what the team's made of and what we can achieve. Um, we probably left the mountain too tall to, to climb at the end. We gave them the 10-point start early on and, and it's tough to come back from that, but uh, I think there was massive um, positives to come from it as well
3: what was the, the build-up like from your perspective um because I, I saw in the press conference that you were talking about you had some family coming over anyway but all of a sudden there was a gang going when they found out that you were you were starting so what was that that roller coaster like from you at what point are you actually told how does that conversation go
5: um it, we were told early enough on thursday morning what the story was so um i could there was enough time to let people know and um, could chat to people in, um, but it was yeah, it was it was a, it was obviously meant a huge amount to me. Um, it was my first Six Nations start, and to be able to have family there was incredibly special. And um, it doesn't get too much bigger than France and Paris.
3: No, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's one of the good trips as well. It's like uh, everybody loves going to Paris, except I suspect for you, there's kind of a little bit of an added headache then when suddenly three, four people go and becomes ten, twelve. You're like, Jesus, how am I going to get all these
5: tickets? Mm-hmm it, did, it didn 't end up being that much people um, in the end it was there was a few people, but only close so I, I was sorted enough with the tickets um i couldn 't have couldn 't have that with trying to get ten tickets to be honest
3: I know, because it 's not like you 've anything else to, to worry about you know that massive french pack uh yeah, in New Exactly, New Jersey, like, exactly. Oh, I've got to get these tickets too. So
5: <laughs> I know. I, I said to them, I was like, guys, I'll sort you out to, for this number, but after that, you're on your own.
3: Fair enough. I mean, I'm sure they all did quite well. I, like, Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is actually like, where you do get to break the news to friends and family that all of your struggles for now are definitely over and you've turned a corner and you're starting against France and Paris. Like, There's loads of different things where I suspect the game itself and the the build-up and actually being out there for um, Ireland's call they're all huge kind of signifiers but the people who know most intimately what you've been through are the ones you tell first what's that conversation like
5: yeah um, the conversations I had with on Thursday with like, my parents and um, my fiance Robin were incredibly um, it was incredibly special because they're the ones I would have had the, the, the tough conversations with during the tough times so being able to share the nice stories and the uh, the, the good things that are happening—it um, makes it twice as nice. I've been able to share that, the conversation, and then they were all over in Paris there with me, and being able to to be with them the day before the game and the day of the game, going for a walk, and just to clear the mind—it's incredibly special to, to share it with them, and um, it makes it so much nicer for me. Like obviously, I was incredibly proud, but to know that you've got such great people behind you uh, makes it twice as special
3: what's the the difference in terms of how you actually play the game between starting a game and coming off where you've seen different patterns of play like you, you don't get an introduction where you 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 know how the french back row are, are uh, planning on targeting you or what their defensive structure actually looks like for this game when you're on the bench you get to have a, at least a little sense of what that's going to be like so that start to the match how different is it from anything maybe you'd have expected or experienced
5: before um I went about it the same way as if I was starting any other game. Um, I think I was confident enough in the preparation I, I'd had during the week, but I actually prefer starting than being on the bench as you kind of get all these nerves anyway before the game and, and the warm-up and then the National Anthems um, come on. But being able to just get out there and, and do it from a start, I think, makes a big difference. So I actually find it tougher to be on the bench because you don't know what part of the game you're going to come in on um, you don't know what the situation's going to be or at least at the start you can have an influence and you know you would be able to put your foot forward from the start
3: um, When you drop the ball on Matt Hansen's head and he's like suddenly straight through is that like well the training ground really works or is that something that um, is just one of those things that happens
5: It was one of those things that happens because we'd actually plan to kick it the other way <laughs> and then after the first kick Conway had come to me and he said uh, they're completely blocking him and um, I think he was getting roughed up a bit so he wasn't too happy about that so I was like right let's go the other way um, and it was kind of one of those things that just didn't really realize it happened until he'd scored the try and gave me the ball to take the kick and I was like geez that actually worked Happy days. <laughs> um, but yeah no to be honest it was uh, an incredible crap catch traveling at that speed and being able to keep your eye on it over your shoulder as well he did, uh, he did really well
3: in terms of your kicking as well at the moment, like your percentage rate um, at international level at the moment is absolutely sensational. So is this a sweet spot for you? Is this something that you've, you've got nailed down in, in your build up and, and just your ability to, um, to look at the posts and go, yeah, they look pretty big to me at the moment.
5: Uh, yeah, I, th- I think, I think I'm, um, I'm pretty happy with how my kicking's going is I, I feel comfortable. Um, when I stand over the ball, which is a massive thing Um I was before the Wales game, though. Um, I probably got three out of twenty in the warm up. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Good, uh, this is not this is not the great way to warm up." But um, you kind of just put those things behind you, um, and you know that when in the game, when things actually um, when they matter, it's all the preparation, all the work you've done, and, and in the week previous, you just have to back on that and, and have confidence in it.
4: Do you have many conversations with Johnny Sexton about that element of the game or any other element of playing town?
5: Um, yeah, we'd have conversations um, definitely about like plays and wh- wh- what we're going to run for the week. Um, and Definitely when I was younger, I would have talked to him a lot more about that. Um, but I think we both have our own routines and we both know what works for each, each one of us. So um, being able to talk about plays and stuff is obviously important because um, he's obviously an incredible rugby mind and being able to pick his brain on a few things um, definitely helps helps my game a lot.
4: And is the game plan the exact same, whether it's you or him in the 10 shirt?
5: Uh, Yeah, it's it's a team game plan, no matter who's on the pitch, 1 to 23 is. You just don't know with injury, like uh, someone could pull out in the warm-up or someone could pull out in um, the first five minutes. So as universally, we try and keep everything similar um, because it's it's just it's better for the team.
4: Is there a tendency then, and like I mean, in, in a positive sense, is there a tendency to, I guess, follow the graph a little bit of, of Johnny Sexton? Obviously, you'll have your own sort of stamp on things, but with regards to him taking the ball to the line, his bravery in the tackle, all that sort of stuff that plays into this new Ireland game plan, is there kind of a necessity for you to to follow in those footsteps a little bit?
5: Um, yeah, I'd say so, definitely. Um, I think the game plan really, everyone can slide in and and if everyone does their job, and I suppose being the 10, you can learn a lot from what Johnny does and seeing what he does in training and um, in in the game. So obviously we're we're not the same players, so we do things differently, but um, being able to see what he does and add little things to my game is massively important
4: how great was the, the the learning experience on saturday and i mean that in the sense of of france more than anything else i mean coming up against that big french pack playing in in paris and i guess realizing what a force this new french team is did you come away from the game thinking right that's a bit of a marker we can learn a lot from this
5: yeah hugely hugely i think um obviously going up against them and um with the with the um Next World Cup being in France, being in of uh, France, even getting a feel for it. I think we have four or five games in the World Cup there, so and getting a feel for a full crowd and um, being able to plant that seed early is massively important. And then coming up against France as well, like you don't know what the draw is going to be and how that's going to go. And um, I, I think they're they're very a very strong team at the moment. They're very young as well. So, um, but I, I do think mass. Uh, from personally, from an Irish side, I think we obviously didn 't start the best, but we to be able to come back into the game like we did and show the show the belief that we showed um, is a huge huge thing we can take because no matter what happens, we can always always fight back and get back into it
3: last one for me there 's a huge focus in the aftermath on the decision not to kick for the corner to take the points. Is there anything in your heads afterwards now where you go and let's talk through the decision and see in retrospect would we do something differently or is it just that that's parked straight away? Like how do you how do you first off the the level of focus that is is on that and then is there any parts of you that are going well? We should we should just talk this through again and would we make the same decision if that occurs or reoccurs? Uh,
5: I suppose you can always take learnings from it, but I think still looking back and i think it was the right call uh it brought us to a, within three points with nine minutes left and um, i think who knows we get we get back in we get within anywhere in the halfway and uh kind of mario and myself back ourselves to kick from there and um, so i think it was i think it was the right call at the time Um and yeah looking back on us i'd still if I was to go back in time and do it again, I'd, I'd I'd do the same thing.
3: And the extra focus that comes now from these games, these all these big decisions are going to be played out again and again and again. The media, that's just something you guys have to live with, I suspect.
5: Definitely. like Anyone knows that hindsight's a great thing and people could be like, oh, if you kicked to the corner and you scored the seven, then you would have won. But you don't know, France could have come back. And you just don't know. Yeah. I suppose we, we all still think to this day That it's the right call And that's what we have to go on We're the ones out in on the pitch And we were the ones who um, live by it So yeah, I think we're I think we deadly right
3: I think everybody's delighted that you're back And that you had the opportunity to show us What you're capable of at the weekend I, Do you feel that support from the public? that there's like We've been dying to see what you can do In an Ireland jersey for so long Because of the injuries You haven't had a, a, a real fair crack at it just yet But that's coming now And we're all very excited about it I guess you must be too
5: yeah, massively, massively. I did feel a huge amount of support and there was so much well wishes. And it's, it's, it's so nice to uh, to be able to go out there and um, show somewhat of what I can do. And uh, yeah, it's really exciting. And um, so looking forward to the, the rest, rest of the tournament and onwards.
3: Keep up the good work. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Thanks guys. Cheers. It's Joey Carby there chatting to us this morning on OTBAM to launch Rugby Players Ireland Tackle Your Feelings campaign. The hashtag is I'm taking control and it provides people with the tools to take control of their mental well being using sports psychology and positive psychology principles. It's 9.35 this morning, OTB AM, brought to you live every morning by Gillette. Good morning, start with Gillette, put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. Tomorrow morning, Champions League reaction and analysis. We'll hear from former Donegal goalkeeper Paul Durkin around tonight's and Cup final between UL and NUIG. Much more as well. The Club Championship show is live across OTB at 10.15 this morning. Two Club all around winners, Pork Mahoney of Ballygunner and Kilku's Jerome Johnson, will join Will and Tommy. The Hurling Power Rankings are on tomorrow's show as well.
0: OTB AM. With Gillette, put your best face forward with our new and improved razors.